All right, everyone, welcome to Inbound 2019. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. We are so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, we're going to get started with just a quick video, uh, and then we'll dive right in. So with that. First time I met Gower Match, and I'm like, he was the only principal. He and I sat next to each other, and it, it turns out magic happened right there. We both love tech. We both love the idea of helping companies grow. I think it was the day after we graduated, we decided to start a company together. So when we first started HubSpot, there was kind of a problem and an opportunity. The problem I noticed was the way humans buy has completely changed. The way you sell has completely changed. In today's day and age, to be successful, you need to have a customer experience that's 10 times better than the competition. That's the way you build a great company today, is really innovating on the go-to-market and the customer experience. And our mission is we want to help companies very simply grow better. We want to help millions of companies grow better. We're passionate about it. We want to help them grow in a sustainable, modern, better way. One of the things about the early days of HubSpot and Darmesh and I is when we started the company, we just didn't want to build something and flip it like a lot of other companies do. We wanted to build something that would outlast us, that our grandkids would be proud of. And that's kept us grounded and kept us really focusing on pretty far out in the future and making long-term bets and really trying to grow our, our business, you know, based on success of our customers. And we still feel that way. We still feel like, you know, we've made a lot of progress. We moved from a lead generation software company to you know, a CRM platform business, we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of users, tens of thousands of customers. The two of us feel like we're still just getting started. We're mission driven and we're happy with what we do and really proud of the progress we made, but we have a lot more work to do. familiar faces here, which is always good to see. Uh, welcome to HubSpot's fifth annual uh, NL State Inbound, everyone. We're so glad that so many of you can make the trip to be here with us in, uh, in Boston to absorb some of the energy, inspiration, and excitement from this week. Also want to extend a warm welcome to those of you joining us over the webcast. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Chuck McGlashing. I run IR as well as corporate treasury here for HubSpot. I'm going to be passing the mic to J.D. Sherman, our president and COO, here in a second. But before I do, just need to run through a couple of quick housekeeping, uh, housekeeping items for the, uh, for the day. So our glorious safe harbor statement, uh, you can find an additional copy of this on our website at ir.hubspot.com. And our agenda for today. So we've got a packed day in store for you. We'll start off the day with an operations overview from JD after he finishes up. Brian and Joe in the back of the room with the two lollipop signs there will... Uh, will be leading us to the main stage area for Brian and Darmesh's Founders Spotlight. Just a quick note, uh, as in uh, prior years, we have reserved seating up front for you guys. So I just ask that everybody try and stay together, uh, walk down as a group. It's going to be awfully busy down there trying to get into the main stage. Just want to make sure everybody gets through to the seating. Uh, you're also welcome to leave your bags in the room. We'll have security in here, and the doors will be locked. So take whatever you need. Uh, once Darmesh finishes up his, uh, his presentation, There'll be a 30-minute intermission, uh, so feel free to stretch your legs, get something to eat or, or drink. 
but please do tr try and be back in your, uh, your seats for Christopher O'Donnell's product spotlight presentation that begins at 4.30. Uh, once Christopher finishes up, Brian and Joe, with the lollipop signs again, will lead us back to this room where we'll have dinner options available in the back right there. So set your stuff down, grab a bite, take your seats. And at 5.30 or so, Kate Buecher, our CFO, will, uh, will take the stage to walk through a financial overview. We'll cap off the day with a 30-minute uh, Q&A session with our entire executive team here on stage. All right, with that out of the way, I'm incredibly pleased to report that we've surpassed 26,000 registered uh, attendees for Inbound 2019. As you can see, uh, you know, we've grown uh, by nearly tenfold uh, dating back to 2012 when we first had our inbound, uh, an incredible result that we're super proud of. All right, I want to thank you again for joining us today and hand the mic over to our HubSpot CEO, J.D. Sherman. Hold your applause, please. No, just kidding. Uh, okay, so Chuck did all the thanks and everything. It's really good to see you guys again. I like the fact that we can all get together uh, once a year and hopefully dive a little bit deeper into HubSpot. Uh, and some of the, the, the direction that we're heading, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy the, the keynotes as well today. Um, I want to start with what I consider an innovation. This is my safe harbor haiku, because you don't actually want to read uh, Chuck's. This, I think, sort of sums it up exactly right. So I'm telling you stuff, and it's definitely true, but hey, things can change. That's pretty much a safe harbor haiku. I'm really not allowed to use that because our legal team doesn't love it, but uh, I feel like it's a major innovation. I always like to start with our mission. Um, I start every big talk with a mission, whether it's with our partners or with our uh, employees, because I think it's really important. It's only a handful of words. We want to help millions of organizations grow better, but it's really every word kind of has a lot of meaning, and it has a lot of meaning in terms of the way we approach uh, our business. Uh, first is help. So we're a software platform, obviously, but we're more than a software platform. We're a philosophy about how to grow your businesses better using the entire sort of flywheel as we talk about it. Um, and we're also people, um, whether those people are HubSpot employees or partners, we're passionate about helping our, uh, our customers be successful. Millions of organizations, obviously what that uh, tells you is we're focused on the mid-market, uh, not uh, the very largest Fortune 500 or the top 100 customers. We don't index that way. Uh, I think part of our job is to sort of democratize the technology and the tools and the platform to help those mid-market companies compete with the big guys and run the playbook to match their marketing and sales and services with the way their customers live, work, shop, and buy, and then grow better. We want to uh, focus on long-term sustainable growth the right way, the healthy way uh, for our customers rather than short-term decisions. And we think about our own business that way as well. Okay. <clears throat> Last year we talked about... Uh, uh, innovating and adding a lot of new uh, software products. We launched a few products uh, at, the, at the inbound while you guys were here. Uh, I wanted to give you a, a snapshot of how that's gone so far this year. So just as a reminder, I used this chart last year. Back in 2015, roughly, uh, we kind of had one product line. We did have one product line, and it was kind of tuned for that sort of 50 to 100 person uh, organization. You know, I give that product an A for uh, the sort of 50-person organization. And certainly we had an enterprise edition that w we targeted towards larger customers and a basic edition. But those were kind of C to C-minus type products. 
What we really accomplished in 2018, and we're still on this mission, obviously, is to expand that uh, very dramatically. Uh, and I joked, it's both, we expanded both north, south, and east, west. So north and south, meaning that our enterprise products got much, much better and real and, you know, are a good fit for a 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 person company. And we went after a simpler, more frictionless model to acquire customers at the low end of that so any company could start with HubSpot and grow with HubSpot throughout its life cycle. And then, of course, east and west, we added a sales hub and a service hub. So I want to give you some uh, information and some stats about how that's going. Let's talk about uh, east and west first. So what this chart shows is the amount of uh, the, the growth suite adoption across of our customer base. So we have, uh, you can see about 37% of our uh, customers now are using uh, multiple tools in HubSpot. Uh, and I think there's uh, still room to grow on that. Also, interestingly, about 6 or 7% of our customers are using all three of our tools. Uh, obviously, the Service Hub being the newer tool, adding sort of to the, the third leg of that stool. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. When we initially introduced the, the Service Hub product, uh, it really had a very strong use case for our customers who were using Sales Hub and Marketing Hub that needed to extend into the, this idea, this concept of a ticket, to manage a, a ticket, a service ticket from their customers. And we've got a lot of traction with that, and that business is growing very rapidly. I think as we continue to invest in that, that business will sort of stand alone and be a more powerful tool, and we have a big opportunity to continue to cross-sell that into our install base. So what that does, obviously, is it tends to pull up our ARPUs as we get customers to add more and more uh, uh, of the products that they use from HubSpot. If I think about uh, the north and south motion, as I like to call it, let's talk about north first. So we spent a lot of time focusing on our uh, enterprise products so that we could sell to larger and larger customers. Um, and you remember last year we added an enterprise tier for sales and service hub, and we really beefed up the enterprise tier for our marketing hub. Uh, we've been able to, over the last sort of 18 months, kind of double the number of our customers that are using that enterprise tier. So we have almost 8,000 customers now of our 65,000-ish customers that are using our enterprise tier product. And again, that tends to pull up our ARPU, uh, which is a very positive thing. Uh, on, the, on the other side of the equation, let's talk about sort of the southerly direction, if you will. So what this is about is uh, adding starter tiers across all of our hubs so that customers can start with our free product, adopt the starter tier really frictionlessly, often without talking to a human being, um, and start to use the product, get using it, uh, and we're, we're adding value for our customers before we're expecting to extract value with a uh, conversation to get them to upgrade in, into uh, professional. What this tends to do, obviously, is lower the CAC, lower the friction of acquiring a new customer, and that, of course, tends to pull down the ARPU a little bit because uh, those customers tend to be smaller when they start. So you kind of have this interesting phenomenon that I've joked about as being a humidifier and a dehumidifier in the same room. The humidifier is adding to ARPU as, as customers uh, upgrade and cross-sell, and then the dehumidifier is we're bringing in lots and lots of new customers with this motion. And you can see that we're getting a lot of nice traction on that. This is a chart that shows both our weekly active users and our weekly active teams over time, and that's a really nice trend. You can see we're up to almost 70,000 weekly active teams. I like to look at the weekly active teams as well as the users because what we notice is when a user starts and then they invite a team member at a 
with a very high percentage, almost 20% of the time, those customers, those teams become uh, paying customers of HubSpot. So that's a really powerful motion for us. And by the way, don't worry about those dips in the curve. Those, I took vacation during those periods, so I was able to get the ship righted relatively quickly. In all seriousness, that's like Christmas vacation. That's holidays, the, the, the December holidays. Uh, okay. And by the way, the other thing that, that happens with that motion is we reduce the friction throughout the whole process. Uh, what this chart shows is the percentage of our ARR that we're signing up after the customer is already using our product at some level. And you can see that over 60% of the time, that's the case. I don't think this ever gets to be 80 or 90% because we have a really strong motion with our sales team. We have a lot of considered purchases of folks coming in and looking for a CRM, a marketing solution, a sales solution, but that's really healthy. That's a really healthy motion for us. It really lowers the friction uh, for our uh, sales process, and it's better for the customer, I would argue. Okay, so let's talk about 2019 and what we've been up to this year, and I call it a year defined by our customers. We really said this is going to be a year where we want to focus on that customer experience. So last year during Brian's uh, keynote talk, he talked about the flywheel and how you have to reduce the friction for your customers and uh, turn your customers into advocates, and that's something we took to heart ourselves. And you're going to hear a lot about this in uh, Christopher's product keynote in particular uh, this year, so I'll give you a little bit of a preview on that. As we talked about last year, uh, we used to think about this sort of as a funnel where you thought about what leverage can I get out of my marketing and sales motions to produce the most customers here. The problem with a, with a funnel idea is it doesn't give you credit for delighting those customers, and that in turn uh, turns into your best route to market. And so we shifted the idea to a flywheel where the customers are at the center of that, and this is really what's driving our thoughts around uh, our efforts, particularly in pro on, on the product team this year. So let me talk about that a little bit. So the first one is, and I want to introduce this concept that we call internally the main sale. We love nautical references. Everything, like we call our planning season, tuna season. Uh, when we make a decision, we don't actually make a decision. We sail a ship. So we have a bunch of stuff like that inside. But we, we introduced this idea shortly after, probably you guys have forgotten about this, but we had a little bit of, a, of, a, of an outage at the end of Q1. That was actually very rough at the time, but I think it's turning out to be one of the most uh, uh, monumental and seminal moments for the company as, as we grow because it made us rethink how we sort of develop software. And we came up with this idea of a main sale where at the bottom of the main sale are the things that customers absolutely need to be able to count on. Um, you know, we also learned through this, through this is when we were a marketing app and the product had issues for a short period of time, customers were like, oh, my emails didn't go out. They'll go out in two hours. Whereas when you're running your entire business on HubSpot, it really becomes critical. So the way we thought about it is sort of guardrails and goals. So our product teams, who operate pretty autonomously, uh, they sort of listen to what customers want and sort of deliver on that. We said, that's awesome, but you, we're going to have guardrails around the product has to reach a level of security, reliability, performance, and usability um, before we start working on value and growth items. And that, those are at, obviously at the top of the main sale. So you know, if, if we weren't a company that loved nautical references, this would be a pyramid or something. But what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're delivering on the promise of uh, security, performance, and reliability. So that was sort of our first big uh, effort this year. We also delivered a lot of really new stuff that I won't go through in detail, 
um, because uh, you'll hear about it from Christopher next. But our themes were this year for our customers, we want them to be able to grow easier. We want to make, we want to take uh, the friction out of the way uh, of how you have to use HubSpot. We want that to do, be better. We want to give them tools so they can grow faster. And then we also added a bunch of tools to our free um, product that we think will drive a lot more usage and in turn feed sort of our, our internal motion about acquiring customers. I think that's, that's um, gone really well. Again, I won't, won't get into any of the specifics about the, the, the product launches. We can talk about that later, but also Christopher is going to um, talk about that in more detail. But my summary is we sort of made life easier for our, our, uh, our customers. The other thing we invested heavily in is our platform. So this year we've continued to add uh, capability and, and robustness around our platform. Uh, so far this year we've added over 100 new uh, Connect partners to the platform. Um, and our customers are really benefiting from this. Our average customer, even though we, you know, we tend to have small and medium-sized businesses, we see that they're using five-plus uh, integrations on the HubSpot platform with their, with their uh, HubSpot implementation. That's pretty fantastic, and we've gotten 700,000 uh, cumulative integrations so far. Uh, one of the things I'll, I'll talk about a little bit is I think this helps sort of spin an investment flywheel for us because as this platform gets better, uh, it makes the experience better for our customers. Customers are happier. They grow. It makes the, uh, the platform more attractive to developers. So we've made uh, some investments there. Uh, another thing that we don't talk a lot about, but I think it's really important uh, and interesting when you think about HubSpot as a platform or an ecosystem, is education. So you, we're, we're, we've been known for a while for our HubSpot Academy and the content we've done to teach customers about inbound marketing, teach customers about how to grow better. Um, a couple of years ago, we said we want to we want to sort of brand this as a learning center, and we uh, we we basically created a learning center where you sign up, you get a, a free user ID, and you can access all of this content. Um, and you can see over the time we've had almost 400,000 signups, and about 250,000 uh, people have earned certifications on uh, HubSpot about how to do inbound marketing, how to do SEO, et cetera, et cetera, uh, right around the flywheel. And I think this is going to be a really powerful um, sort of force in the, in the overall platform flywheel as we go forward. Okay, let me look a little ahead and maybe make some actual forward-looking statements at this point uh, about how we're thinking about uh, investment for the next, call it, three to five years. Uh, so first of all, as you've heard me talk about, and I've sort of showed you some uh, stats, and if you don't believe me, just look at the arrows. Like we're on the process of evolving from an app company where we started as a marketing app to a suite uh, to a real platform. Um, and so that's our theme as, as we make all of our investments. And uh, I think it's starting to pay off, and I think you can actually see, start to see the return that, we've, uh, that we have on this investment. So this, uh, you guys are as familiar with these numbers as I am probably, but uh, you know, three or four years ago, we spent maybe 13 or 14% of our revenue on R&D. And you know, a lot of companies at that point were public starting to get some scale. They would start to get some leverage from that. We, in fact, have actually increased the amount of R&D spend uh, to the point where the last sort of 18 months, we've been spending about 18% of our revenue uh, on R&D. So we've really increased that a lot. And I think one of the places you can really see the benefit of that is in where you, if you look at where our revenue is coming from. So 
Obviously, our marketing hub is still growing very nicely. I still think there's a big opportunity there. But we've layered in additional products driven by that R&D, and that's taken our growth rate up very substantially to the point where we have you know, a pretty big uh, sales hub business now and a, and a nascent but growing very fast service hub. And I think there are more opportunities to do that. So I still think we're in a situation where uh, R&D investment is going to pay off for us, and there's a big opportunity to do that. Kate will talk more in her section about the way we're thinking about the go-to-market and the, and the marketing sales investment. Our, our LTV to CAC is still fantastic. We want to keep cranking there. But I think we're getting a return on R&D, and I think that opportunity is actually growing for us to get more of a return on our development spend. Where are we headed with that development spend? I think we're headed in sort of two ways. Um, there's sort of two big opportunities for us. The first uh, is to continue layering in fast-growing hubs on top of the platform that we've built. So the nice thing about our platform, as we've talked about in the past, is it's built on a common framework so that the pieces all work really well together. The value add for HubSpot when we launch a product is, of course, the product has to be excellent, but it's the sort of the one plus one equals three. It's the, it's the magic of the way those hubs work together to enable our customers to do uh, really powerful things to uh, help their customers. And so uh, I won't talk today about uh, what those hubs look like or uh, when they're coming, because that would be uh, a little bit, I'd have to swear you guys to secrecy, which we're not going to do, obviously, in this room. But uh, there's sort of two things I would say about that. One, over the next three to five years, I expect us to launch several hubs. I don't know. I'm not going to say one's coming in Q4, Q1, whatever, but I think we'll have the opportunity to launch several new hubs over the next three to five years. And then the decoder ring sort of on what those hubs look like is to the point that I was making earlier. Like the magic for HubSpot is we want to introduce software where you, our customers get a one plus one equals three with the way it all works together. So that's the way we start to think about what might be next uh, in terms of our investment in fast-growing hubs. In addition to that, and on top of that, really, I think there's an opportunity to layer in um, uh, the ability to sort of monetize and grow our platform business. So what we've been doing, really, with our platform is sort of trying to reduce the friction for our customers to find the help they need, find the software they need, pull down the assets that they need to be able to, to leverage their HubSpot implementation and, and grow better. I think we're, uh, we're starting to develop sort of a marketplace for our partners, marketplace for our Connect partners with software, even an asset marketplace uh, for, uh, for like templates and forms and landing pages, et cetera, uh, that um, our customers can leverage as they look for help to grow their businesses better. And I think there's a big opportunity um, to do that for us as well. So I think there's, in addition to delivering more software, I think there's an opportunity to continue to grow that marketplace, uh, to grow that platform and sort of build marketplaces around that that uh, we can both monetize and help our customers with. Uh, and this is what I was talking about before. What I think that does for us in general is sort of spin what I call the platform investment flywheel. So we like to use flywheels around here. But what, what's happening here, and I think we're starting to see the early uh, stages of it is, as our customer base grows, there's a bigger opportunity for partners of all types, software developers, uh, agencies, implementation partners, et cetera. As that occurs, more investment is happening in the platform. Obviously from us, I just showed you that we're taking up our R&D spend over time, 
But also we're seeing developers build for HubSpot. We're seeing partners invest in HubSpot. We're seeing customers invest their time and energy and expense in using HubSpot more efficiently. And I think as you get more investment, the platform gets better. And of course, happier customers. And then hopefully we can continue to spend that, uh, that investment flywheel. And hopefully that's the formula for us to become a really big company uh, over the next few years. So I'll just wrap up really quickly with sort of three key takeaways that I think you guys uh, could take away from this. Uh, one is like we have a really strong go-to-market model, but we're continuing on focusing on improving that by taking out the friction uh, and then by cross-selling across uh, that uh, for other software packages that or other uh, hubs that we, we deliver. And I think that's going to be a motion that we can continue to uh, rely on to, to drive a great lifetime value for customers and continue to reduce our, our CAC or keep our CAC low. The second one is we're getting a very strong return on investment on our R&D, and I think there's continuing uh, opportunity to do that, so you can expect us to continue to invest in R&D over time, and I think that we'll see the payoff from that. And then the third is, like, we think we're still in early innings. Um, we talked about uh, having 65,000 customers. I think the opportunity is much larger uh, for that. I think we've talked about moving towards a platform uh, model. I think there's a real opportunity that we're just starting to see get traction around the flywheel. But we're investing in this company uh, based on the, the, uh, the idea, and we really strongly believe that we're in the very early innings of uh, the opportunity for HubSpot. Okay, so thanks for listening. Thanks for coming again. And uh, our two gentlemen in I the identical outfits almost will, uh, will uh, lead us down to listen to the keynote. All right, thank you. Cut costs, increase margins, and bow to the bottom line. We're told to get in people's faces, force conversions, and make it hard to leave. We're told to grow at all costs. I see a different way. I choose to grow better.
help customers, not interrupt them. See relationships, not just deals. I choose to sell what people need, only when they need it. Solve for my customers, not just my quota. I choose to focus on impact, not just revenue. Measure in loyalty, not leads. I choose to get rid of friction and seek out feedback. Own up to my mistakes and get better every time. I choose to do the right thing, even when it's hard. Stay true to my purpose and build a community. We're told to grow at all costs. I choose to grow faster. Thanks, everybody. Uh, it's a real honor to be able to present to you today. And I'm super excited about my topic. I'm going to tell you about a new species of disruptor in the economy. But before I get to that, I want to tell you about my nightly routine. You see, every night, Romeo and I, we come home from work and we take a lift. Then we cruise up to our apartment. And the first thing we do is we put on our favorite band. <laughs> Sorry. First thing we do is we put on our favorite band on Spotify. And of course that band, you all know it, you all love it. And cranking the music, we boogie over to the doodog area and Romeo's chicken toys are everywhere. We gotta clean out those chicken toys and make room because he got a new package in the mail from Chewy.com. He loves those chicken lollipops. He just loves the chicken lollipops. We finish up our snack. The two of us head down to Soul Cycle and we get a good workout in. Then we come home, shower up. We get our new, we got our new package from Dollar Shave Cup, so we both shave up. And then we come downstairs and we order a little chicken a la king from uh, DoorDash. And then we're a little tired. We want to put our toes up and watch Romeo's favorite movie on Netflix. Like a lot of you, the two of us are trying to avoid screen time before bed, so we read our favorite comic, we lie down on our Casper mattress, and we need a good night's sleep. I, I, don't, I think we have a fascinating evening routine. You don't? I think it's fascinating. All these companies, I just ripped through all eight vendors. We swapped out the incumbents for a whole new set of vendors in our lives. And it's not just our evening routine. It's our daily routine. It's all of our daily routines, isn't it? It's been a massive wave of disruption happening. Frankly, when we started HubSpot back in 2006, I thought disruption was at an absolute peak, couldn't get higher, but disruption is at an absolute peak now. All these companies, terrific companies, are all worth more than a billion dollars. Disruption speeding up, not slowing down. Now. Did any of you notice anything funny about me in those pictures? 
broke my arm. I'm going to tell you how I broke my arm. We caught it on video. If you're squeamish, I'd like you to look the other way. Okay. In the video, I'm the guy in the orange pants. Boom. <laughs> Works every time. Okay. B to C. Everything seems to be changing in our consumer lives. Massive waves of disruption going on in the consumer world. What about the business world? What about at HubSpot? What about at all your companies? Is there a change afoot? Is there disruption happening? I'll let you guys be the judge. See, a typical day for me, a typical morning, I might be out on the West Coast and I cruise into our WeWork office over there. I got a big important meeting that day, so I get in my cubicle and I want to collaborate with Darmesh to prepare on Slack. And then I run over to the conference room. I don't want to be late because I want to scarf down a sandwich from Easy Cater. And then the meeting's about to start. So I fire up Zoom, make sure everything's perfect on Zoom. And then we have a great conversation with our new partners from AWS. <laughs> fascinating. I think my morning is fascinating. And again, just a wholesale swap out in vendors we do business with that morning. And it's not just that morning. It's every day for me. It's every day for HubSpot. It's every day for all your companies. Disruption speeding up, not slowing down. Really interesting. These companies are fabulous companies. They're all worth over a billion dollars. Okay. Did anyone notice anything funny about me in those pictures? <laughs> right. I had a ice pack on my back. Okay. Last time. I said, if you're squeamish, look away. I was kidding about it. This time I'm serious. If you're squeamish, I'm looking out at you. Everyone's looking at the screen. If you're squeamish, I'm, I'm dead serious, look away. I'm going to tell you what happened with my back. I told you to look away. <laughs> I was bit by a brown recluse spider. Hell of a summer I had. Put me in the hospital. Darndest side effects. <laughs> I keep talking about this word disruption. That's a word first used in this context back in 1995 by a guy named Clay Christensen. He's a Harvard Business School professor. And he talked about it in this context in a terrific book called The Innovator's Dilemma. Highly recommend that book to everyone. Since then, though, this word's been heavily overused and heavily under-understood. And it's on my top five list of words that are most overused and most understood. It's number three on the list, right behind artificial intelligence and blockchain. <laughs> now, what's so confusing about this word? Why so under-understood? Well, I have a theory. My theory is when most of us think about disruption, we think about companies like these. They're technology disruptors. The browser, the Google, the Intel, the iPhone, maybe the Tesla someday. Big, deep technology companies. You add up all the patents across these five companies, 50,000 patents. These are technology disruptors. 
What about our friends? Are they technology disruptors? I'm not so sure. Uh, I'm not so sure. So I like this list a lot. And about four months ago, I started preparing for this presentation. And I went very deep on this list with two of my colleagues at HubSpot. And we talked to almost all the founders. We purchased pretty much all the products. We read all their terms and conditions. We talked to their big investors. We went deep on them. And my thesis here is they're not technology disruptors. They're a new species of disruptor that's emerged in the economy. And I call that species an experience disruptor. Okay? Now, when I look at the genetic code of these experience disruptors, and I look at the adaptations, there's five of them. There's five things, like modern adaptations that they have that have allowed them to really run over the incumbents in their industry. And so today, what I plan to do is unpack those five genetic adaptations and what I want to do is leave you all with a playbook that you can take back to your company so you all can become experienced disruptors, too. How's that sound? Sweet. Let's get started. The first adaptation, if I talk to the incumbents, the incumbents, you see, they focus on product market fit. The experienced disruptors work on experience market fit. Here's how they think about product market fit. They think of it as necessary, but insufficient to get the disruption that they're really after. So necessary, but insufficient. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We started this project four months ago, and at the time I had never heard of this company, uh, Carvana. But a bunch of my colleagues had purchased cars from them and, and were raving about them. So I did some research, and they are an awesome company. It, it's a startup. It was founded five years ago, and within five years, it's already the largest car dealer in the United States. It went public last year. It's got a market cap of $12 billion. This is a killer experience disruptor. How did they do it? Now, you might think they did it with inventory. Typically, a car dealer, they got cars all over the parking lots. These guys do it differently. They build a giant car vending machine. Now, that's necessary but insufficient to get that crazy growth they've had. The reason they get that crazy growth is they're focused on the experience market fit. What they're really focused on is they've set out to create a whole new way to buy a car. So you don't just buy the car from them. They do all the crappy paperwork. They deal with the DMV. They deal with the taxes, registration, all that crapola that none of us want to do. Then you tell them, hey, I bought the car. I want to deliver it at my house on Tuesday. Uh, you give them the address, the car shows up at 2 o'clock on Tuesday for you. Pick a time and a place. Awesome. You drive the car around for a week. For whatever reason, you're not happy with the car, return it, no questions asked. Experience market fit. They've taken the cringeworthy process of buying a car, automated it, institutionalized it, and made it awesome. When I look at these experience disruptors, they all have great products, but they have even better experiences. Here's how I think about all of them. How they sell, that's why they win. Okay. Let's talk about the second, uh, the second one. Let me sit down for this one. So <clears throat> to unpack this one, this uh, adaptation, we had to take some DNA from the experience disruptors, and we studied it under a microscope. DNA under there. 
And what we expected to see when we looked under the microscope was a double helix shape for their, their, uh, their DNA. So we focused in on it. Very surprising. We really focused, had to focus in on it. It wasn't shaped like double helix at all. It had a very different shape. Their DNA was round and spinning. It was the perfect flywheel shape. <laughs> okay. If you were here last year when we talked about the flywheel, could you clap for me? Ooh. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Thank you for coming back. Uh, for those of you who weren't there, we collectively here at Inbound 18, we retired ye old funnel. The funnel just doesn't understand us like it used to. See, the funnel, it gave us credit for our marketing channel. It gives us credit for our sales channel. But it gives us no credit for our most important channel, our customer channel. No credit for that. I also like that the flywheel spins. The faster it spins, the faster you grow, and you want to get friction out of that flywheel in a modern company, and you want to track that. So I'm a big flywheel fan. And that brings me to the second adaptation. If I look at all the incumbents, their flywheels are full of friction. The experience disruptors, very different. They're very good at pulling the friction out of their flywheel and getting that thing to really spin. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. It's a company called Atlassian. If you haven't heard of Atlassian, uh, it's a great company. They make B2B collaboration software like Jira, Confluence, Trello, terrific products, really great products. We had a chance, oh, by the way, this company is not a small experience disruptor. It's not a startup. It's been around a while. Uh, it's a large company growing very fast, very profitable. Its market cap's $32 billion. These guys are friction-fighting superheroes, really good at it. And we had a chance to sit down with Jay Simons, their longtime president. And he schooled us on, on, um, on fighting friction. The first thing he started talking about is he likened the process of buying B2B software to the process of buying a car. He actually called it cringeworthy. It kind of hurt. Um, Anyway, he started talking about his marketing department, and he talked about his sales department, and then he talked about his contract, and he talked about pulling uh, friction out of these three things. And super valuable. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to walk you through what he talks about. So his marketing department looks less like a traditional B2B marketing department. He's a B2B company, but his marketing department looks just like a B2C marketing department. His marketing department looks less like, let's say, SAP's marketing department, and more like... Stitch Fix's marketing department. They focus less on generating leads and more on generating active users. They focus less on trying to sell the CIO and more on trying to get that CIO to buy from them. All of the B2B experience disruptors are playing this new playbook. When you look at the marketing departments, they're, they're B2B companies, but they're B2C marketing departments, and they're all getting really good at this. What's interesting, interesting to me about this is the whole B2B marketing world, this world itself is going through another major interesting disruption. Jay and his crew is really good at pulling friction out in marketing. Now, most of the other B2B experience disruptors, they do a really nice job of marrying their B2C style marketing that's very low friction with a slightly heavier friction traditional enterprise sales model. They're really good at getting that going. And I said most of them, because Jay doesn't do this. 
What impresses me about Jay and Atlassian, they do multi-million dollar deals, no sales reps, no sales force at all, no commission-based sales force. Now, just a few years ago, you'd buy a toothbrush or a comb online. Now people are buying multi-million dollar pieces of software. Really, really interesting to me. One more. Jay talked about the contracting process. Fascinating to me how he thought about it. And what I want to do is kind of role play with all of you. Let's pretend that I'm a potential buyer of your company's products, okay? You're a salesperson for your company. We're going to do a little role play. I go to your website, I Google you, find you on your website. I love your website, by the way. It's terrific. Nice job. The design's great. SEO is great. I subscribe to your blog. I follow you on social. I dig deep. I do the same thing with your competitors. I'm coming along. I'm pretty interested. Then I say, I'd like to talk to a salesperson and learn more. So you do a fabulous job. You engage me. You solution sell me. You really understand my pain. You do a fabulous job. And over the course of a couple of months, you're, I'm building up trust in you. I'm building up goodwill in you over time. And you're doing such a good job. Congratulations. I'm ready to buy. Tell you I'm ready to buy. And all that trust, all that goodwill, all of that goodness goes down the tubes and we go through a brutal negotiation over the course of weeks and months. Really don't like this. Really don't like this. Jay doesn't like this either. So what Jay said was basta. Enough. No more negotiations. We're not giving discounts to anyone. I don't care if it's my sister. No discounts. What Jay wants to do is for us, he wants to keep the goodwill between us. He doesn't want to destroy it. He wants to keep that trust between us. He doesn't want to destroy it. He doesn't want an adversarial relationship while we negotiate. He wants to keep that partnership going. Really clever stuff. Now, Atlassian's kind of here on the friction side. I'm going to guess your companies are closer to here. It's going to be hard to get all the way there, but I think you can get partway there. One more thing I love about Atlassian. I pulled down the uh, investor deck that they did, so the slides they used for investors, and this is one of the slides in it. You know what I like about that slide? The flywheel right on there. <laughs> right? They're a flywheel business. They're a low-friction flywheel model. They get terrific products. Great products are necessary, but insufficient for that $32 billion market cap. How they sell, that's why they win. It's a terrific company. Okay. What's the third genetic adaptation? <laughs> the incumbents. When you're a prospect and a customer, it's relatively anonymous experience with them. The experience disruptors, it's a very personalized flywheel experience. Now, one of the things that surprised me in, in our research project, when we talked to the founders of these companies, they didn't sound like tech people. I'm sort of a tech person. They didn't sound like they came from Oracle or Cisco. When you talk to them, the language they use they sounded more like executives from the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons. They sounded like they're in the hospitality business. Very different mindset. All these companies, I wouldn't describe them as tech companies, I'd describe them as ultra-modern hospitality companies. They're really good at this stuff. Now, it shouldn't surprise me because a lot of the founders came through the hospitality industry. They worked in the hospitality industry at some point in their career. One in particular caught my fancy and that's Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, I don't know if you know this, but he started his career as a line cook at McDonald's. 
kind of interesting to think about what would have happened if Jeff stayed at McDonald's and went from line cook, store manager, regional manager. What if Jeff were CEO of McDonald's today? What features might we have? I'm not sure, but for $119 a year, I bet we could get all the burgers we can eat, prime beef only, at the press of a button in less than two seconds. <laughs> okay, the granddaddy of personalization isn't Jeff Bezos. It's actually this guy, Reed Hastings. He's the founder of, of, uh, oh boy, of Netflix. He's the founder of Netflix. And we tried to get a meeting with him. We had a hard time getting a meeting, um, but we wanted to do uh, some work on him. So we deep, deep research on on Netflix, deep research. Some people might call it binge watching. <laughs> he used this funny expression. He said, "We avoid info. Uh, we avoid psychographics." And he's a really smart guy. And when I was listening to a podcast with him, I had to Google like 20 things. This is one of the things I Google. Psychographics is a very fancy word for persona. Many of you are familiar with personas in this room. And what he talked about was we're replacing the persona with a segment of one. See, inside of, of, of Netflix's database, every one of us, we have a fingerprint inside of there. The more we use their product, the better that personalization gets. This is one of their real secrets of success. How they sell is why they win. Now, Netflix isn't the only company moving away from personas and using data to be much more prescriptive about personalization. This is also happening at Stitch Fix. Katrina Lake, one of, a really great entrepreneur, she dropped a handful of handcrafted personas in favor of dozens of data-crafted clusters. Same type of idea. Same thing with Daniel Ek, the CEO of Spotify. He's talking about moving away from personas to use cases. Honestly, this one kind of bummed me out. I've, craft, I've done handcrafted personas Clap if you've done handcrafted personas. You made a persona. Right. They're hard. They're really hard. These guys, they had only had two personas, and they were perfect. They captured sort of the energy of so many consumers. I thought they were really good. First one. <laughs> Their second one I thought captured the other half of you, because maybe obviously this didn't connect with you. The second one was... <laughs> he did replace them with use cases or mixes. And some of the mixes were pretty good. I listened, of course, to the, the Deadhead Dance mix. But the really good one is they have a new mix out there. When I play it, Romeo goes nuts. It's the Doodle Dance mix. Love the Doodle Dance mix. All these folks, it's kind of the same game they're playing. They use data, lots and lots of data to highly personalize your experience with them. Very interesting how they do it. How they sell is why they win. Now, you can't over-personalize. I want to tell you a little bit of a story uh, from uh, my summer vacation. In between the arm break and the spider bite, I was on tour with the Grateful Dead. People still do that. And I, and I, any John Mayer fans out there? Yeah. Me too. I'm a John Mayer fan. And I got an opportunity to meet him backstage. I had three minutes with him. So very quick thing. And I was super ner <laughs> I was really nervous to meet him. 
And I thought, what are we going to talk? What am I going to talk to him about? I got it. I'm going to tell him the spider story. Tell him the spider story. He's super interested. Tell him about the spider. He likes spiders. And I walk on, and, and we finish the thing. He goes on stage. I walk to the concert. I look at my phone, and the first thing I see in my phone is an ad for Spider Away. Was it listening to me? What the flock? <laughs> Clap if this ever happens to you. Okay. With great data comes great power, and with great power comes great responsibility. Be careful with your data. You can overpersonalize. Okay. Let's do number four. It's a good one. Uh, it's the fourth genetic adaptation we've noticed about our species. The incumbents, well, they're very good at selling to their customers. The experience disruptors, well, they're very good at selling through their customers. And one of my favorite entrepreneurs, and give a couple of examples of this, one of my favorites is Emily Weiss um, of Glossier. Emily came to Inbound last year and spoke. We got to know her. She was terrific. And she told her story, in case you missed it. She started Glossier as a blog. She's a fabulous content creator. And the blog's called Into the Gloss, and it was blowing up with beauty tips. And then she started developing beauty products. Did a fantastic job with beauty products, and she's a bona fide experience disruptor now. Where she's next level is she's really good at not just creating her own content, but encouraging and enabling her customers to create content too. So there's hundreds of thousands of pieces of content out there about her products created by her customers. This one in particular, it actually wasn't that rare. It's, it's a video. This is not a Glossier employee. This is one of her customers. It's got over a million views on it. She's not just selling to her customers. She's selling through her customers. I'll give you another one. We met Neil, the founder of uh, Warby Parker, also at Inbound a couple years ago. He's a classic experience disruptor. He thinks of the process of buying glasses as also super cringeworthy, and it is. The old process of buying glasses was a pain. You had to schedule going down to the store. The scheduling was a bear because you had to bring your most judgy friend with you. So he said, I'm going I'm to rethink that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to mail you the glasses. You try them on. You post them on Instagram. And you ask all your judgy friends for their opinion. <laughs> I, I like number one. How they sell is why they win, of course. What's the last one? I like this one a lot. The incumbents, they're business model followers. The experience disruptors, they're business model busters. You see, what's going on inside most of our businesses is we all live inside an oligopoly. Each of our companies probably has between five and ten competitors. When you unpack the business models, you look at the pricing and the packaging and the warranty and all the terms and conditions, they're nearly identical within this oligopoly. One of the things that really surprised me about these experience disruptors is they rethought those terms and conditions in ways that were much more customer friendly. I was surprised at how powerful this play was. By rewriting those terms, they were able to bust through those oligopolies in really effective ways, most of them 
are dominating their industry. I'm not sure if you noticed, but almost all these industries, they're kind of winner-take-all, and they're starting to really beat up on the competition. Now, I want to give you an example of one of these. The example I talked about earlier is Romeo's favorite uh, experience disruptor. And I ordered a medium shirt for Romeo. He's always taken a medium. And I put the shirt on, and the poor dog could barely breathe. It was too tight. Too many chicken lollipops. Uh, so I called Chewy, and I said, oh, I'd like to return my medium for a large. And the woman said, no, 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 no. That's not how we do it. Okay. How do you do it? She said, give your medium to a friend of yours, and we'll send you a large for free. Really? This worked out great for me. I didn't have to do the return, didn't have to do any paperwork. Fantastic. It worked out great for Romeo. It worked out really well for his friend Woodford. <laughs> what I like about this is their cost to acquire Woodford was very low. Right? I, I got Woodford for them. They didn't have to really spend any money to do it. They're their total lifetime value of Romeo is very high. Why is that? Well, they have such a great return policy that Romeo's just buying all kinds of stuff now. Now, these experience disruptors really are a different species. They think differently. Uh, learn a lot in this project. The founders have a healthy disdain for conventional wisdom. They all embrace unconventional wisdom. The founders, they don't spend nearly any of their energy extracting value from their customers. They spend all their energy thinking, how do I add value to my customers? They're really good at this stuff. I'm really impressed with these companies. Help me out here. How they sell is? You got it. <laughs> okay. Now. While we're on the topic of returns, I want to tell you about a trip I had after college. After college, I went to Europe with uh, five of my good buddies. We did one of those trips. It was uh, 16 countries in eight weeks. We had a ball. About halfway through the trip, uh, we were in Prague. And I walked into this great little shop in Prague, and I saw these two beautiful vases. You know, I thought to myself, I'm going to be a good son. I'm going to buy those vases for my mom. That'd be a nice present. Get back to my youth hostel. I show it to my friends. My friends are like, wow, hashtag son of the year. Amazing. I thought I was absolutely brilliant until the next morning when I was packing. <laughs> I walked around Europe with these two things clanking on my back. Eight countries with those things clanking back there. Anyway, I get home. I'm excited to see my mom. I haven't seen her in two months. I had a nice present for her. Mom, great to see you. I have these beautiful vases for you. Those are nice. <laughs> Underwhelming response. And I forgot about it. She did rear me. <clears throat> a couple weeks go by. I had to come home. Laundry day. I walk into the laundry room. The damn vases are in the laundry room. <laughs> Mom, 
They look great in the family room. How about the kitchen? The colors match perfectly. Good idea. Let me think about that. For 30 years, those damn vases stayed in the laundry room. Christmas comes along this year. And under the tree, there's two beautifully wrapped big boxes. From mom to Brian. I open the boxes. Mom returned the vases. Now, with all due respect to Chewy.com, I got one hell of a return policy. Okay. Enough about me. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about your superpowers. We started this presentation out today talking about my nightly routine. Routines can be good. Routines can hold you back, though. All of you probably have routines. And on Monday, you're going to go back to the office. You've got a choice. You can get back to your office and do your normal routine, drag the spreadsheet on your career, drag the spreadsheet on your company, or you can embrace these new five experience disruptor plays and harness your inner superhero. If you want to harness your superhero, and if you like these plays, I'm going to summarize them for you. Okay? So you're going to go through all of them for you. The first one is... Don't obsess completely about product market fit. Somebody in your company is obsessed with that. This is a sales marketing service type conference. It's probably not you. You, probably you, should, expect, uh, should obsess about experience market fit. Okay? Embrace your inner Carvana. Two, dollars flow where the friction is low. Dollars flow where the friction is low. Maniacally remove friction. Automate, automate, automate like the superheroes at Atlassian. Three, Automation without personalization, that's what people call spam. Personalized, personalized, personalized. Think like Netflix and fingerprints. Four, don't just sell to your customers. Sell through your customers like our friends at Glossier. Really effective tool. Five, rethink ye old business model. Rethink it from scratch. Look at your terms and conditions. Look at your pricing packaging. Look at your competitors rethink that whole thing. Now, my favorite thing about this list, nowhere on here does it say blockchain. Right? <laughs> nowhere on here does it say artificial intelligence. Mere mortals like me, we can do this. Mere mortals like you, you can do this. When you get back to your office on Monday, try to get out of your routine and embrace these plays. And if you do that, how you sell is how you'll win. I want to thank you all for being a fabulous audience today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Please welcome HubSpot co-founder and CTO, Darmesh Shaw. everyone. Brian and I started HubSpot over 13 years ago. And I've learned a lot in that time. Today, I'm going to share with you some lessons, both personal and professional, from my journey to try and grow better. I'm going to share some mistakes I've made that I think are worth avoiding, and some things we've gotten right that I think are worth replicating. Now, Brian's mentioned some of his fears, so I think it's only fair that I talk about some of mine. We all have fears, local fears, global fears, present fears, future fears personal fears, and professional fears. Now, since we're at inbound, if it's easier for you, you can think of those as B2C fears versus B2B fears. For me, there are a few things that scare the life out of me. The first one is terrifying. I can't understand why everyone doesn't have this fear. It's just, I dread it. I dread it. It's the low battery warning. <laughs> I hate that thing. It makes my heart rate go up. And not in a good way where you get credit on your fitness tracker. Not in a good way. So why the dread? Without battery life, our devices die. And without devices, all we have is each other. People. The horror. And it's because of this fear that when I got this message from a colleague of mine, Christopher O'Donnell, who's the head of product at HubSpot, I was shocked. Not shocked at the valuation for Monday.com, great company, great product, more power to them. Shocked because if you look in the upper right, 
he's got a low battery warning. What's more is there's no lightning bolt in that battery warning thing. It's the phone is not charging. The phone is not charging. So yet he has the presence of mind to send me a screenshot, send me a message while like living on the edge. What was even more shocking, it's 6.53 a.m. Who uses up their battery life by 6.53 a.m.? Personal fear number two. I hate making eye contact. Thank you. And I know some of you are thinking, well, he's making eye contact with us right now. No. I'm not. I'm looking at your foreheads. You all have lovely foreheads, by the way. Nicely done. If I'm not looking at your foreheads, I'm looking at the floor. I've built a great rapport with the floor of this convention center. We're BFFs. All 18 miles. Here's someone who also has a lovely forehead. This is my wife, Kirsten. She's in the audience right there. Hi, sweetie. She and I met 27 years ago. I made eye contact 25 years ago. Thank you. I was proud of myself too, thank you. So. Now when we first met, Kirsten talked to me about the GRE, the Graduate Record Examination. It's like the SAT, but with less acne. So Kirsten says, I'm thinking about going to grad school. So I'm planning on taking the GRE. And I'm like, well, that's serendipitous. I'm planning on taking the GRE. I was not planning on taking the GRE. But it wasn't a total lie. By the time I had said those words, I was now planning on taking the GRE. So our first date was a study date. Now some of you might be questioning, does a study date really count as a date? Yes. It does. Study date. It's got the word date right in there. So we plan our date. I'm not outdoorsy. Kirsten digs the outdoors. I dig Kirsten. So we're outdoors for our first date. <laughs> this is a photo of us outdoors with our GRE book in hand. Now, I apologize for the grayness of this photo. This was back when you had to get photos developed like a caveman. So we have a son, by the way, he's eight now, so hun. And he likes to joke that mommy and daddy met in the late 1900s. And I'm like, you're not wrong, but I would tread lightly. Mommy brought you into this world, she can take you out. Daddy got you on the internet. He can take you off. <laughs> Last year. Now, I know many of you are wondering, 
why is Darmesh fearful of yoga splits? <laughs> he doesn't seem like the type that would do yoga or splits. This is actually a fear of water. I have a very rational fear of water because I can't swim. Just never learned. So you see a photo like this, and many of you are thinking, oh, that's a nice, tranquil pool. And the thing that goes through my head when I see this, danger. Death awaits. And I can't help but think, I did not plan properly to die today. Now, my life has turned out okay. I've mostly avoided water my whole life. Beaches, water parks. Cruises are okay, because cruise ships are practically a small continent, like Australia. So sure, I've missed out on a few things. But overall, I'm fine. I tell myself late at night, I'm fine. But now I have a son. His name is Sohan. And he's afraid of the water, too. So when he was in his late sixes, <laughs> he wouldn't put a foot in the shallow end of the pool, not even a toe, wouldn't go near it. So that night, in Maine, I was listening to the sounds of the forest, or it might have been someone's Spotify playlist, sounds of the forest playing too loudly, I don't know. The point is, I was overcome with guilt. I thought, is fear of water genetic? Did I pass this down to my son? What have I done to my son? I have failed as a father. Aquaman's son would not have this issue. I felt so guilty. So I talked to Kirsten, who is not neurotic like I am. And she says, genetics? Maybe. Or maybe he just needs to learn how to swim. Brilliant thesis, I thought. So we try that. Put Sohan in swim class. And lo and behold, the boy can swim. Like he were the son of Aquaman. It's awesome. So this is Sohan at that exact same pool that he would not put a toe into. This is him cannonballing into the deep end of that pool. Thank you. Yeah. This is awesome. Did my heart so much good to see him in the water. But then he turns to me and he says, Daddy, why are you afraid of the water? No parent wants to look scared in front of their kid. How we face our fears is what defines our destiny. And often, how we overcome them involves not just one thing, but multiple things coming together. And if there's one person that understands the combinations of things, it's this dude. Now, you probably don't know who this dude is, because most dudes in the 1800s look like this. Actually, 200 years later, lots of dudes still look like that. Back to this dude. 
I'll, I'll give you a hint as to who this is. Yeah, I know. This is John Venn. He was a mathematician from Cambridge, UK. I hear they have a Cambridge there too. He invented the Venn diagram. It's a part of math that's called set theory. Now, you've probably learned about Venn diagrams in high school, or if you're from India like me, first grade. So here is an example of a Venn diagram. You have Paul Simon, gifted musician, singer, songwriter. You have Art Garfunkel, who has the name Garfunkel. <laughs> Slightly better example. You have animated characters that love carrots, like Bugs Bunny. You have animated characters that are loyal friends, like Donkey from Shrek. By the way, it's not the donkey. The name of the character is Donkey. I just saved you some Googling time. Then you have animated characters that love carrots and are loyal friends. This is what I like to call a Sven diagram. <laughs> I know, I know. You have to take the good with the bad, folks. You've got a dad on stage wearing dad jeans. You have to expect dubious dad jokes. That's how it goes. Now, for those of you in the audience feeling left out, a little bit of FOMO because you didn't get that joke, just let it go. <laughs> now, many of you are wondering, why is Dharmesh talking to us about Venn diagrams? It's because facing your fears involves the intersection of different but complementary things. So, a couple of weeks ago, I posted this to LinkedIn. It got some resonance in the community. I thought I'd share it with you. As a startup, at first you fight death. Next, you fight stagnation. Then, you fight complexity. So before moving forward on the path to growing better, you should know what fears you might encounter along the way. Brian talked about five genetic adaptations of the new breed of experience disruptors. I'm going to share with you the five fears that you're going to need to face on the path to growing better. Now, before we dig in on the fears, it's important to recognize not all fears are bad. Some are worth fearing. They're dangerous, scary. The important thing is you have to pick the right fears to pay attention to. That's what we're going to talk about. Fear number one a fear of commitment. This is a paradox for me. I'm exceptionally committed to the things I commit to. Kirsten and I have been together for 27 years. Brian and I have been working together for 13 years. I've been wearing this t-shirt on stage for 10 years. <laughs> when I commit, it tends to stick, apart from diets that don't include pizza. I know that about myself, which is why I find it hard sometimes to commit, to make a decision, because I mistakenly assume when I make the decision, it's going to last forever. So the result 
is uninspired compromises. Instead of committing to one path or another, I avoid a decision altogether, and I think many people have the same challenge. So we made one of our first uninspired compromises early on at HubSpot. We were unable to decide exactly what customer base we were going to focus on. Here's a photo from the first year of HubSpot. We're having an animated debate over email. Anything else would have required eye contact. Now, you can't tell from this photo, we are mid-compromise right here. Now, I want to pause and make a few observations on this photo. I know this looks like a Fortnite marathon for dads. It's not. It's a room at the Marriott across the street from the HubSpot office. And so you're wondering, well, why are you working out of a Marriott across the street? And the answer is because HubSpot was on fire. Literally on fire. Like there was an electrical blowout. And so, by the way, don't you hate when people use the word literally when they actually mean figuratively? It's like, I, like my heart literally broke into a thousand pieces when I heard Ed Sheeran was no longer touring. I'm sad about that too, but really, did your heart break? Did you count those pieces? <laughs> so when I say HubSpot was on fire and literally on fire, there were literal flames. It was on fire. What was not on fire was my fashion sense. So that sweater and those shoes, still own, still wear. Almost wore them today. Kirsten suggested I, I, I might not want to do that. Now, in this photo, Brian, as always, is ahead of his time. This is him working while standing before standing desks were a thing. You can think of it as a hunching desk. Last observation. Both Brian and I are using PCs back then. We both have subsequently switched to Macs. Brian, because he loves Apple. Me, because of free U2 album. Anyway, back to our compromise. We couldn't commit to exactly who our target customer base was going to be. So we kept having these animated debates, weeks, months, years. It was so painful. What we learned along the way was that what we needed was the combination of a market that's big enough to support the growth you want and need right now, but that's small enough that you can focus and delight your customers. You need the intersection of those two things. Because when you narrow your focus, instead of trying to broaden your market, it's easier to grow and it's easier to delight your customers. And delighted customers are important. A lack of delighted customers is not the quickest way to kill growth, but it's the most reliable. To get delighted customers, you need to pick a very specific market and commit to it. Now, many of us have a fear of making commitments, of making sharp, incisive decisions, not hedging. Instead, what we should really fear is uninspired compromises. Those are the quiet killers over time. Fear number two, 
the fear of differences. We're going to go back in time, way, way back in time. This is me, five years old. Now, many of you are thinking, well, back then, you were able to, like, have intense eye contact. You're, like, making intense eye contact. No. I'm not. I'm looking at the photographer's forehead. By the way, I'm wearing a tie back then because I had not yet discovered that one could just start a company and wear logo T-shirts the rest of your life, including on stage. One of the privileges. This is me, version 1.0. I'm out of beta. I'm in my early 20s, Indian accent, super geeky. I've kept that consistent over the years. It takes standardized tests for fun or to meet the love of my life. Now, I'm originally from the state of Gujarat in India. Shout out to the folks from Gujarat, my family. I moved to Alabama from India, and I, Alabamian, for 10 years. That's where I met Kirsten. Now, at the time, I desperately wanted to fit in. Not so easy in Alabama, but I tried. This is me 2.0. This is the result of what Brian might call some mutations or adaptations. I went clean-shaven, hoping it would help me fit in. I worked on losing my accent, hoping it would help me fit in. I even changed my name from Darmesh to David, true story, hoping it would help me fit in and make my life easier at Starbucks. This is me 3.0, still keeping it consistent, still geeky. Shift back to my original branding, Darmesh, but I use just my first name, not because I'm cool like Madonna or Adele, I'm not cool. I do it because most of the time, Darmesh is sufficiently unambiguous and because it's my name, there's that. So me 3.0 went to graduate school at MIT in Cambridge, across the river from here in, uh, in Boston. There, I really fit in. It was awesome. MIT is teeming with geeks like me. Zero eye contact. <laughs> Even on study dates. While I was there, I met another grad student named Brian. I thought, this guy seems pretty clueful. We're similar in ways different in ways, but I'm a startup guy, he's a startup guy, he's more soul cycle, I'm more no cycle, <laughs> but maybe we could work together someday. But there was one problem with Brian, and it was not that he was running around campus with a PowerPoint clicker in his hand, advocating for a disruption in academics while playing John Mayer on repeat dressed up as Spider-Man. I mean, that was a problem. It wasn't the problem. The problem was that Brian was in business school. 
so he's going to be an MBA. Now, don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with MBAs. I love MBAs. Two out of three of my friends are MBAs. And I don't mean two-thirds. I mean I have three friends. <laughs> two of them have MBAs. And yes, one of them is Brian. And sure, the other one might be Kirsten, a non-MBA. The issue was that I was in business school, too. And if you have too many MBAs running around, they start using words like disruption and causation and correlation. It's very disrupting, ironically. So by, by the way, I often used to make the mistake of assuming causation when it was really correlation. But like since business school, I make that mistake much less frequently. Did they teach me that at MIT? It's hard to know for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, Brian and I did end up starting a company together. This is what the early team at HubSpot looked like. We had half a dozen MBAs. We should have gotten a bulk discount. A programmatic discount. No negotiating discounts. Brian and I don't believe in that. MBAs are business geeks. And if you're building an experience disruptor, they're just as important as technology geeks. So six MBAs on the early team wasn't really an issue. But we did have a big problem. The issue was that they were all dudes, all from MIT, all with a similar background. What little diversity there was on the team, you're looking at them right now. Focusing so little on, on diversity was one of the biggest mistakes we made in our early days um, at HubSpot. I think I had spent so much time trying to fit in in the years earlier that it didn't occur to me that maybe other people were having a hard time fitting in with us at HubSpot. So if I had a DeLorean that could travel back in time, I'd have HubSpot prioritize diversity early. And maybe also that series finale of Game of Thrones, but mostly the diversity thing. Sorry, I know, it's, it's too soon, too soon, I know, I get it. The best possible time to start being mindful about diversity is time t equals zero. When you're just starting, starting a new company, starting a new team, starting a new project, the next best time is now. The data on the benefits of diverse teams is overwhelming. But there's a very fundamental, basic reason why diverse teams are better for you and better for your customers. When YouTube launched their mobile app for the first time, the team observed this strange phenomenon. Many users were uploading videos upside down. And yes, I know you're thinking, well, you know, that looks a lot like Brian. I assure you, it's not Brian. As evidence, I submit this actual video of Brian on the Inbound 13 stage. I love many things about my co-founder. One of the things I love the most is that he doesn't take himself too seriously. Love that guy. Sorry for the PDFA, public display of founder affection. Not usually how I roll. All right, 
back to the curious incident of the upside down videos. It wasn't a small number of videos. It was about 10% of the videos that were upside down. So the YouTube team racked their big brains to try and figure out why would people do this? This is crazy. As it turns out, the answer was very simple. It's because 10% of the population is left-handed. And so they hold their phones like this. They hold it differently, not wrong, differently. So they weren't uploading videos upside down from their perspective. So you would think this is a relatively obvious, simple thing. Why, did not, why didn't the YouTube team catch this? It's because no one on that early team happened to be left-handed. They just lacked that perspective. So magic happens when different but complementary people intersect. We build better relationships, build better companies. Someday I hope all companies will care more about the values we each hold, the value we can each add to the team, and will embrace our differences and our quirks. But many companies don't hire for diversity. They often hire for personality fit. They use personality assessments like the Myers-Briggs test. By the way, I am a classic INTJ. I stands for introverted, NT stands for not talkative, and J stands for judgy. Yes, I'm that friend. But you don't need Myers-Briggs to figure out whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. I have a very quick test we're going to do right now. So I'm in about five, I'm going to ask you to turn around in a little bit and introduce yourself to the person behind you. Just kidding. Just kidding. By the way, if right now you can feel your heartbeat in your face, you're probably an introvert. I have a real test. Here's the real test. I would like you to think of a sentence that contains the word network. Don't overthink it. Whatever pops into your head, a sentence that uses the word network. Okay, here we go. If the sentence in your head uses the word network as a verb, as in, I went to that party so I could network, chances are you're an extrovert. If, on the other hand, you use the word network as a noun, I didn't go to the party because the network was down, chances are you're an introvert, and the only parties you're going to are LAN parties. Now, for all of you that did not awkwardly laugh at LAN parties, you're extroverts. <laughs> On a more serious note. So today is popular for companies to hire for culture. But there's a fine line between hiring for culture fit and hiring someone that's a clone of you. Now, I can understand totally why you would want to hire a clone of you. You're awesome. But what you need is a mix of personalities and backgrounds. You need people that reflect who your customers are. You need people that are different. So you might be wondering, it's like, okay, how can I tell if I'm hiring for a culture or if I'm just hiring convenient clones? First of all, your goal should not be to hire people that just fit your culture. It should be to hire people that add to your culture, move it forward. They'll be additive, not just because of skills, but because of a different perspective that they bring. And to truly hire for culture, 
you need to know what your culture is. Write it down. Maybe scary because you're thinking, oh, like my culture is going to change over time. That's okay. HubSpot wrote its culture down years ago in a slide deck called the Culture Code. It changes all the time. It's aspirational. It evolves as we evolve. So while facing differences are scary, I think surrendering to sameness is much scarier. That's the fear we should actually have. Fear number three, fear of change. I'm not just referring to my wardrobe. Many people and companies fear change. Why? Because one day things are finally working. You have an offering. You have experienced market fit. You have customers. Now, finally, you're not worried about dying every day. It's just every other day. And so you're worried that if you change something, you might, like, revert back. So change is hard. And there's been a big change for the top CEOs in the country. Big news. It was covered in all the major publications, covered in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Onion. Here's the news. There's an organization called the Business Roundtable. It was created in 1972, or as someone might say, the mid-1900s. It's a group of over 200 CEOs from some of the biggest companies in the U.S., including Amazon, Best Buy, CVS, Deloitte. In fact, a company for every letter in the alphabet, except Y. Yes, I checked. I'm quirky that way. For decades, this group's definition for what the purpose of a corporation was, was to deliver shareholder value. In other words, to drive profit. This definition for the corporation stood for decades, until two weeks ago. Those 200 CEOs signed off on a new declaration two weeks ago, changing their position. Now they say the purpose of the corporation the top two things, yes, shareholder value is on the list, the top two things, delivering value to customers and investing in employees. I love this news. This is awesome. Because one thing we figured out at HubSpot is that companies are actually building two products. You have the product you're building for customers, which feels natural, and you have the product you're building for your employees, which can feel unnatural. And just like you want to attract and retain the best customers, you want to attract and retain the best people. So what's one of the most valuable features people look for in this product, in this culture? Flexibility. The future of work is all about flexibility. That's what people want. Geographic flexibility, work where they want. Schedule flexibility, work the hours they want and method flexibility, do the work how they want, as long as it's creating customer value. Now, this may seem a bit extreme, like, and it's uncomfortable, it was for me too, but there's an imbalance between the supply and demand of star talent. And if you want to attract that star talent, you have to make changes that are in high demand. And there's some symmetry here between what customers want from the companies they do business with 
and what people want for the companies they work for. So let's double click on this where part, otherwise known as remote work. It's a biggie. It's one that HubSpot has been adopting uh, in a big way. A lot of remote work can be scary. You worry about communication, culture, and the chemistry for great teams. It's scary, but achievable. We've been evolving our remote work policy at HubSpot for the last several years. I'll admit it hasn't been easy, and we still have a long way to go. But we're making progress. At the end of last quarter, we have over 200 full-time remote employees. Remote is the second most searched for word on the jobs website for HubSpot. It's a sought after feature. And if we combined all the people that work remotely, full time or sometimes work remotely, put them all in a single place, the living room would be the biggest HubSpot office. So here's a chart showing the growth in remote employees at HubSpot. We expect those numbers to continue to rise because we're doubling down on a more distributed team. Now remember that remote people are people. Treat them with the same care that you do anyone else on the team, and you can dramatically open up the pool of possible talent that you have access to just by letting the best people do their best work. And often their best work is done when they're in their pajamas. Speaking of pajamas, here's a Venn diagram showing how my happiness is correlated to pajama time. Or dare I say, caused by pajama time. <laughs> now, I've taken this and broadened it to a new business principle. This is the first time I'm sharing it. I call it the pajama principle. It's simple. It states that your success is proportional to the degree to which you let people stay in their pajamas. Thank you. I live by the pajama principle, both as a beneficiary and as an implementer. So many of us are afraid of embracing change. But by refusing to adapt, we're actually accepting stagnation. And that is much scarier. Fear number four, the fear of disappointing. Sometimes you have to make changes that disappoint some so that you may better serve others. Take chocolate and peanut butter. Two great things that go great together. Just like CRM and email marketing. Two things I love. Just like email marketing and CRM. When you combine those two things, you get the magic in the middle. The magical peanut butter cup. This is the OG PBC. By the way, OG PBC would be a great band name. When you bought this classic package, you got two peanut butter cups. They were identical, and you got two of them. Then people said, we want more cups. Reese's responded, sure. Here's a king size with four cups. You're sure to win an Olympic medal. 
go forth and prosper. <laughs> then people said, actually, we want one ginormous cup. Because sometimes we're having one of those days. For some of us, we call them weekdays. <laughs> Reese's responded, sure, here's a Reese's big cup. Knock yourself out. Then people said, actually, we really like M&M's. Can you make Reese's like, like M&M's? Reese's responded, um, sure, here's the Reese's pieces. They taste like Reese's, but they have uglies 1970s colors. No, no, wait, we've got it, we've got it. Take the Reese's pieces and put them inside a Reese's cup. And Reese's was, this is getting kind of ridiculous, but fine. We heard you like Reese's, so we put Reese's in your Reese's. Enjoy. And they kept going and going and going until one day Steve Jobs said, stop, this is crazy. Steve Jobs did say that, but he didn't say it about Reese's. He said it about Apple. He had just come back as the interim CEO in 1997 of Apple. So his title was ICEO, which I think is kind of cool. It's the little things. Um, <laughs> when he got back to Apple, Apple had hundreds of products because they were listening to retailers and everybody wanted their own thing versus listening to customers. Apple was losing money and by all predictions was going to go bankrupt within 90 days. And Apple said, stop the madness. He decided to cut the product line down by 70% and he said every Apple product has to fit in one of these four categories. Did he disappoint some people? Absolutely. But a year later, Apple turned profitable. And they did it by better listening to customers and simplifying. Because too much choice is friction. I go to Baskin Robbins, I see 31 flavors, my heart rate goes up. And not in a good way that you get credit for on your fitness tracker. So much pressure, it's like, just give me one scoop of vanilla and just let me go. I know, it's kind of scary to disappoint people, but the fear you should have is not disappointing a few, but not delighting the many. That's the actual fear. Last fear, fear number five, the fear of inferiority. Many companies have an insecurity about their product or service, it's not good enough. But instead of making it better, they take the easier path and focus on the short-term bottom line. And what's worse, they try to fool us. Take this lovely product. It's the 150 mega marker activity basket. It's fun. And it's washable. Parents love washable things. Partly why we love our kids, because they're washable. Now, if you look at the top of that basket, here's what it looks like. If you open up 
the basket. Here's what it looks like inside. I know I'm hearing some groans, some gasps. Same here. Pretty sneaky, right? It's like, I mean, yes, the label says 150 pieces, not 150 markers. But you try explaining that to my five-year-old niece. Where they placed that label was diabolical. It's not right. They had every right to do it, and we have every right to dislike and distrust them for it. And today, trust is scarce. And as a result, those companies that can generally provide it succeed. And to build trust, you should do two things. Do the things we want and expect. So if we sign up for a social network, we should be able to upload photos of our cats, track down long-lost classmates, but mostly cats. What we're not expecting is for our data to be shared with others that are not solving for our interests. So I think every business should take this oath, the oath of experience. We will deliver the experience, the whole experience, and this is the important part, nothing but the experience. Because you'll always have competition. They might beat you to market, they may have extra features, but you can always aspire to be the most trustworthy and provide the best experience. Remember this tool? This summer, Kirsten, Sohan, and I went back to the same pool. Only this time, Sohan wants me to get into the water. I'm reluctant, to put it mildly. But Sohan has his mom's determination and his mom's I'm not backing down off of this look. He talks me into getting into the pool. I'm grabbing onto the side of the pool for dear life. Even though it's only five feet deep, I can literally stand in the pool, like literally. Note the correct use of the word literally. And I'm like, Sohan, you need to be patient with me. It's not going to be easy for me to learn how to swim. And then Sohan said one of the most profound things he's ever said. Now, kids say profound things all the time. This one stuck with me. He said, Dad, you're not learning how to swim. You're just learning how to dunk your head in the water. I'm like, okay. And he's like, do it. Like, right now? <laughs> like, yep, do it. Wow. Was that like two minutes, three minutes? <laughs> Dad, that was like one second. All right, do it again, don't hold your nose. All right, do it again, but keep your eyes open. How did you know my eyes were closed? I know, Dad. Okay. Do it again, do it again, do it again. Now, do it, but flail around in the water trying to move in some general direction. <laughs> so I do that with all the grace of a drunken swan. 
So here's me in the shallow end. Thank you. Of that pool. Now, along with wearing far too many clothes, I'm also wearing my Apple Watch, because what kind of idiot makes all that movement without getting credit on their fitness tracker? And then here's where I'm panicking. It's like, this is one of those infinity pools. There's no wall. This goes on forever. It's like, no, that's not how infinity pools work, Darmesh. It's going to be okay. The wall's coming. The wall's coming. The wall's coming. Okay. And I have my Michael Phelps moment. So what did I learn? Besides that it's okay to be a dad that's scared. I've learned that seemingly overwhelming fears can be managed by taking small steps. You don't have to overcome your fear overnight. Just dunk your head. Listen to one piece of customer feedback. Fix one point of friction. Make one person on the team feel more included. Then do it again. Do it again, do it again. It gets easier and easier. Magic happens when you face your fears and combine different but complementary things. Facing my fear of eye contact brought Kirsten and me together, resulting in Sohan. Facing my fear of being different resulted in me and Brian joining together to create HubSpot. And facing my fear of public speaking has given me the honor and the thrill to intersect with all of you folks today. I am immensely grateful. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of Inbound. Now go out there, face your fears, and network. Yeah. Up next, Christopher O'Donnell. That Christopher O'Donnell after a break. Thank you so much. This is a piece of customer feedback. It's three sentences, 39 words, 156 characters long. Some pieces of feedback are longer and some are shorter. Some might be urgent and others can probably wait. But anyone who has ever written feedback wonders, does anyone actually read it? On its own, a piece of feedback is easy to ignore. But the customer who wrote it spent weeks, months, and sometimes even years thinking about ways to improve your company and products. At HubSpot, we think that deserves our attention. That's why we read all of our feedback. It starts when your feedback reaches our team. And we mean our entire team. Product experts, customer success managers, marketers, and more can discuss the issue. We compare this single piece of feedback with hundreds of other tweets, emails, chats, and calls. And the problem starts to become clear. So we all come together to scope out the project, build the feature, test it with users, and refine based on results. Finally, 
the feature is released to you. That single piece of feedback helped us create a better product and customer experience than we ever imagined. So to anyone who has ever tweeted at us after a long day troubleshooting, thank you. To those of you that emailed your concerns after combing through countless articles, thank you. To everyone who has ever called, chatted, or submitted a survey, thank you, thank you, and thank you. We see you, we hear you, and we value every character, word, or sentence that you type. You help us grow better. Please welcome HubSpot's SVP of Product, Christopher O'Donnell. Thank you for every character, every word, every sentence, also for every rant, your praise, and the moments of delight that we built together. See, at HubSpot, our mission is to help you grow better. And to do that, we need to know from you what that's going to take. We spend our time listening to customers and learning from companies that do the same. We just heard Brian mention some products, really cool products, that have totally changed his perspective. We saw how his perspective has changed. And some of these I relate to because I'm a daily user of them, like uh, Lyft and Chewy. I have a little uh, black lab. She's 10 years old. And DoorDash. Some of these companies I relate to just because they're so freaking cool, like millennial pink level cool. So Emily... Uh, sorry, Brian mentioned Emily Weiss and Glossier, and I want to dig a little bit deeper there. And I could say that I'm not a user of Glossier's products, but I think my, my dewy glow gives it away. What I admire about them is how they really listen to customers. They're really super driven by customers. So check this out. This is a product that Glossier's built. It's called the Milky Jelly Cleanser. What a name. And wow. What a product. It's award-winning and all that, but the best proof is in what customers are saying about them and how fast customers are reordering. The best skincare product on the planet. Magic. Must-have. Perfect. Wow. Over 1,300 five-star reviews. See, by developing products centered on their customers, Glossier grew to over a hundred million in revenue last year. How on earth did these folks pull this off? Well, how do you develop a face wash? I've never done it. I can imagine a product manager putting on his or her standard issue black t-shirt and doing the incremental stuff. You know, maybe make a face wash that's a little bit scrubbier or a little bit bubblier. Maybe make it a little more expensive, get a better margin. But that's not how you make a great face wash. A people-powered ecosystem. That's how they did it. You see, in 2015, Glossier's product team set out to build 
a face wash completely driven by customer feedback. And so they used their blogs, their social media, email. They engaged thousands of readers to come and give them feedback. And what they heard drew them to a path that they likely never would have taken without that kind of input. We saw how well it worked out for Glossier. Shouldn't HubSpot do the same? Yes. In fact, we decided not to get up here this year and announce a whole new hub. We took a year to obsess only on the feedback and let that guide our roadmap. You see, Brian and Darmesh have created this customer-obsessed culture. And we live in it every day in a bunch of different places. So let me give you a peek what it's like to be on our team. Whether I'm on my phone or my laptop, this is where I hang out every day, along with about 1,000 other HubSpotters. It's a Slack channel. And in this Slack channel, we see every single survey response, every single piece of customer feedback that comes through. And nothing warms my heart like seeing a support rep and a product manager, a customer service manager, maybe even a founder chiming in on a piece of feedback. It's this magical aligning experience when we're all reading and discussing real feedback in real time. But NPS is just the beginning. See, we have to have one place where the whole community can vent and brainstorm and build off each other's ideas, and that for us is the HubSpot Ideas Forum. So there's some terrific ideas here. We watch this really closely. And I promise that we'll get into some serious stuff, but first, let's have a little bit of fun. So there was a customer who remarked that we had done everything that they had asked us to do, and so they threw this up on the Ideas Forum just to see what we would do. In case you can't read that, it says, I want a pony. And it got 220 upvotes. And all these people piling on in the comments. So we said, let's do it. And then the post office turned us away. So we figured a real pony was not going to make it all the way to this customer in New York. So we did what any good product team would do. And we sent them, this little guy, a stuffed pony named Douglas to Manhattan. And I'm told Douglas enjoys everything bagels with a nice smear of cream cheese and sharp spicy yellow mustard on his hot dog. So ponies aside, there are a ton of ideas on this forum. And we have the vast majority of them either delivered or currently under construction. We're going to see a bunch today. As you can see, it's a super active community. But I'll be honest, what we're not good at is closing the loop and reaching out and telling each one of you when we've done the thing that you cared about, that you voted for. So we learned that's a full-time job for someone. We've made it someone's full-time job. Look for us to do better there, and thank you for the feedback on that. And now I want to prove it to you. Across tens of thousands of conversations with you this year, there were three central themes to your feedback, three ways that you challenged us to grow and grow better. The first was pretty simple. Dear HubSpot, I just need this to be easier. We saw from Brian's talk and the products he discussed that ease of use is no longer uh, nice to have. It's a must-have, especially for your overworked and scaling, growing businesses. So we didn't have to look very far for this first Make It Easier For Me feature. It was the number one idea in our Ideas Forum. In fact, this problem is so old across our entire industry, I swear this is true, researchers found this painted on a cave wall in what is modern-day France. Totally true. Since the dawn of man managing, I should say, customer relationships, 
that data has been messy. And the single biggest source of that messiness has been duplicate contact data. Tens of thousands of years later, you all still have duplicate contact in your CRMs. Dupe data makes marketing tracking less effective and less accurate. It creates more friction for your sales reps in the selling process. And the process of addressing this, the process of finding, merging, deleting duplicate contacts has been enormously difficult. Why? Well, it's been manual. Not anymore. We're thrilled to launch a new contact deduplication tool powered by artificial intelligence, and it makes it a breeze to keep your whole database clean. No other CRM in the market has such a powerful feature built into it. We stand alone. Clean data gives you your freedom back. And nothing says freedom like the open road. Let's take a look at how Harley-Davidson is using contact e We have a lot of people that will come in, never ridden before. Once they get on a motorcycle, they're really hooked, and then they get out on the road and they kind of understand when we talk about, you know, personal freedom and things like that. Our relationships with our customers are really a key ingredient to our business. When guests uh, enter our store, you can see their eyes light up when they walk in the showroom and see all of the motorcycles, I mean, they understand that you know this is a an experience that's a lot different than other stores that they walk into. Our guests are very unique. What we try to do is tailor a unique experience for each one of those guests. HubSpot really helps us with our customer experience. It helps us speak to our guests and understand what they're looking for in their journey. People are so passionate about it that it doesn't take a lot for me to really put in to get them excited. You know, I just feed on that excitement and I, you know, push it right back and we share that with each other. My job is to help get them excited and to, to bring them in. I import leads daily. Harley doesn't always give us an email address. It'll create new contacts very, very frequently. We do have a lot of duplicates in the system. We have over 34,000 contacts in our system. Um, so we do have a lot of data that we need to sift through to really organize. Because we have duplicates in the system, sometimes with a different email, is that the same customer will get the same email two, three times, depending on how often they're in the system, or product specialist A is going to reach out, but then product specialist B also reach out because they don't know that A is reaching out. So it just it's a bad experience, and, it, and HubSpot has really helped us take that out and just really customize our communication to better suit our customers. The way the deduplicating feature works, basically people that have either the same first name, last name, or same address or phone number, finds them so that I can decide is this the same person or not. A lot of times we'll have people by a nickname like Rob, really, it's also Robert, so it really helps kind of minimize that. I was blown away. I was like, this is amazing. Where was this open? <laughs> so it was awesome. I love it. There's a lot of ways HubSpot has really helped with efficiency, and it helps us customize and really make the customer feel special. I really wanted to introduce HubSpot to Open Harley-Davidson because it helps us bring our customer experience to the forefront. Uh, it lets our sales and marketing teams work together to be able to provide the experience that customers want. Harley-Davidson is really about riding motorcycles or using motorcycles to exhibit who you are and your style and your, you know, where you want to go and what you want to do in life. It's, 
it's using a motorcycle to get somewhere and express who you are. Wow, who wants a Harley now? I know, I do. Well, thank you, Carolyn, and the, the whole team at Harley-Davidson of Oakland. I'm so psyched to see you having this level of success with HubSpot. You guys absolutely rock. Now, deduplication wasn't the only thing we did to make HubSpot easier, and it's not even the only thing around contacts. So here's a big idea that many of you mentioned in feedback and that we really wanted for ourselves. You know, we use HubSpot CRM exclusively inside HubSpot. So speed. Speed makes a product easier to use. This is very true. So our platform needs to feel lightning fast. This year we spent an enormous amount of energy speeding up wide swaths of the platform. And this is my favorite example. This is one of the toughest problems we had. You see, this is called the contact detail page. And this layout gets loaded millions of times a day. It's a mission critical thing for sales reps, for marketers and service folks. And there's such an enormous amount of data on this page, there's a ton of heavy lifting that has to happen. It's a very, very hard page to load quickly. Let's take a look at how it loaded this time last year when we were in this room together. Okay. And now, let's race without motorcycles. On the left is the new version, and on the right is the old version. Let's see how they stack up. Wow. Fast feels easy. What do you guys think of that? We also redesigned this critical page to have a lot more information in it while still having a very approachable, clean UI. That was something you guys pushed us for, and we delivered on that. We've gotten great feedback on that. So that's not all. Let's see what else you were asking us for. Contact deduplication was the number one most requested feature. What we're going to talk about next is the number two most requested feature. Workflows are hard to manage without foldering. Stephen Franklin here was hardly alone. 450 customers asked for this. There were 10 pages of comments. And frankly, our marketing team really needed this as well. Done. All right. <laughs> folders and workflows. Now you can keep your HubSpot account organized and you can assign folders by, um, by team, by geography, whatever fits your business best. So sometimes feedback is easy to understand, but it takes a while to get to. So we were really glad to get this one done for all of you who voted for it. People wanted to link branches of workflows together. In fact, lots of you needed this critical feature. It saves time, and it also it keeps your workflow design clean and elegant. And we heard you. Today, I'm happy to introduce merging workflow branches. Here's an example. Let's say you're building an onboarding experience with uh, email. You may want each person to have a very tailored experience up until the end where you want everybody to get the same email. Now, that's very easy. You can do it in HubSpot with just a click. Merging branches is available today in companies, tickets, deals, quotes, and it's coming very soon to contacts, which I know you're all excited about. All right. Customers should be able to just click a link and buy. How can we make the last mile of the sales process as frictionless as possible? 
You've all heard of e-commerce. We think the future is B-commerce. Digital B2B commerce. I'm going to admit, the next slide is the most self-serving of the entire presentation. And by self-serving, I mean it's literally self-serving. It's your customers serving themselves. These guys are excited. Who's excited for this? This is as cool as it seems, I'll tell you. I know some of you are actually already using this. I saw examples this morning of, uh, of agency partners selling courses and all sorts of stuff off their website. And that's easy to do. You can put a link on your website. You can sell services, courses, whatever you want. You can put uh, a CTA in your email signature. You can send links through chat. Very, very cool. Rule number one of sales, if a customer is ready to buy, let them. So, dear customer, we heard you. We've made it easier for you to do the things that you need to do in HubSpot. Here's a snapshot of some of the other related improvements we didn't get to today. And let me ask, for all of you who needed HubSpot to be easier, who's excited about all this new stuff? Okay, the second theme of your feedback was, dear HubSpot, I need more. And with apologies to Christopher Walken and Will Farrell, you were not asking for more cowbell. You're asking HubSpot for more enterprise-level functionality and more integrations, just to be sure that you'll never outgrow us. Makes a lot of sense. So let's start by meeting a unicorn company here in Boston who continues to grow better through our vibrant developer ecosystem. We are a cybersecurity company. We help large enterprise businesses keep their employees and their data safe from breaches and hackers. One of the first things that we did at a team was step back and take a look at all the tools that we had in place and make sure that we were using things that were not only going to help us grow, but also would grow with us. When we looked at the platform that we had in place, it did not represent a central hub where we could plug lots of things in and expand our go-to-market. It was a mess. We're managing multiple tools, multiple logins, and reporting was a nightmare, and we made the decision to consolidate and go all in one platform with HubSpot. We have over a dozen apps integrated with HubSpot that are helping us grow and scale globally. That's why we love the HubSpot app marketplace. It's a central hub, it's an easy place to discover new tools, and for our team to connect existing ones. It's almost like downloading an app on your phone. It's a click to configure. You're not relying on IT. I'm confident that I can set up a new integration through a couple of clicks. In one specific instance, we identified a marketer, a goal, and a budget on Monday, and we had results showing up on Friday. I really see it as my job to enable the team members to be able to execute on their jobs on a day-to-day -day basis in the most seamless and efficient way as possible. Some of the integrations that help make that possible, things like Google Search Console, SurveyMonkey, Hotjar, Perfect Audience, and Eventbrite. And Eventbrite allows us to measure the effectiveness of those events, but also share the information back with the sales team in a quick and timely fashion. And GoToWebinar helps us effectively track who's attending what and share that back with the various teams that need to know. And using HubSpot as our one central hub connected to these different integrations allows us to track how our events, how our webinars, and how our other campaigns impact the bottom line. HubSpot has enabled Cyber Reason to grow. We've run 250 roadshows across the United States and Europe, and that's all been executed directly through HubSpot. HubSpot certainly makes life easier from a marketer's perspective. 
more importantly, HubSpot's making a better experience for our customers. It's helping us improve the user experience on our website. It's helping us improve how people consume our content and how we interact with people at events. If we didn't have HubSpot, Cyber Reason wouldn't be able to move as fast as it does. Life without HubSpot would be chaotic. There's no other way to put it. Deciding to go with HubSpot was one of the best decisions that we've made. HubSpot is a platform and a teammate. It's really great to be able to see a team work so efficiently and the tool benefits me, it benefits the marketers, and it benefits our customers. All right, let's hear it for Cyber Reason. I'll tell you, it's amazing to see the growth that they've had, and it's been a huge privilege for us to be along for some small part of the journey. So let's take a deeper look at the app marketplace they're talking about. It's a totally redesigned and rewritten app marketplace with hundreds more apps and extensions than last year. It's growing, frankly, faster than we expected. This all-new marketplace makes it easy to find a curated set of over 300 apps and extensions. You can plug them into your HubSpot account with just one click, and that gives you the power to connect all the tools that you use easily into one place. And Cyber Reason's Director of Customer Success has gotten into the fun too. Her name is Jean, and she told us, our NPS score went up significantly this year because of our new engagement model, all of which would not have been possible without HubSpot. See, Jean's department was able to turbocharge the flywheel by bringing all of their applications into one place. Very, very cool. Great work, Gene. Let's see some more feedback. Paul Taylor at Sourceability told us they needed to easily assign permissions across groups. Makes sense. You need the right people to have the right access to the right tools at the right time. So whether that be the content for a team's region or a sales pipeline for a given sales team, you need to be able to manage this easily and manage it over time at scale. Let's do it. Today we're happy to introduce new permission sets across all HubSpot Enterprise products to help your growing company stay organized. It's a centralized tool for admins to manage permissions for groups of users so you can spend less time organizing your team, less time administrating, and more time on the fun stuff actually helping customers. Now, CJ at Complete Payroll asked, how can customers share on our behalf? What a cool idea. Take your customers and transform them into your best salespeople. This is what the flywheel is all about. And how could we do some work once, set it up, and have it work magically forever? And I love this next one because it shows the power that our newer products have because they were built on the unified HubSpot platform. See, by using this massive existing powers of workflows, you can automate to leverage your own customer NPS feedback. You can create triggers for tasks and deals, quotes, reviews, emails. And you can do it all from within the workflow engine that you already know and use and love. See, building a process around your feedback is the single key to growing better, if you ask me. And with advocacy automation, it makes that an easy 10 out of 10. I see no reason why we shouldn't be able to test multiple variations in A-B testing. Now, we all know marketers absolutely love experimentation. 
And experimentation is about trying big, big, crazy things. So why should we limit A-B testing to just A versus B? This year, we set out to make experimentation a whole new level of powerful. This uses the same artificial intelligence that we use for contact deduplication. We've made adaptive page testing very, very easy, and I'm telling you, this is really cool. You can now test up to five variations, and my favorite part is that as you go about the rest of your day, HubSpot will sniff out the winning variation and start to incrementally point more traffic in that direction. It's all machine learning and AI behind the scenes. Super cool. Now, Kirsten from CIAT wrote in, ultimately, we want to help where students are chatting with us. Customer feedback comes through a variety of channels. It comes through social media. It comes through email, forums, all over the place. It's true for us. We know it's true for you. A big place customers want to be engaging with you today is Facebook Messenger. So I absolutely love this release. You know, over a billion people use Facebook Messenger. Now with HubSpot, you can create these seamless Messenger experiences across your Facebook business pages and then manage them within HubSpot in a unified inbox. Super cool. That lets you have more personalized conversations, build stronger relationships by meeting your customers where they are in the way that they want from you. So look, here's the thing. Sometimes feedback can be tough to translate from the words we're hearing into actionable steps in the product. It can be hard to squint and kind of read the tea leaves. For example, with reporting, we've been getting a lot of customer feedback saying vague things, like, I need to be able to drill down into reports and add drill downs into reports. And we've been scratching our head. We don't know what to do with that. But over time, we started to piece together a trend. These are actual support issues filed for our reporting tool, and we finally got it. You want to be able to drill down into reports. So we've added drill downs into all reports at HubSpot. Who's excited about that? Before, admittedly, you had to navigate through the product to find exactly what you were looking for, and now any report you see, you can click through and get the information you need to make better decisions with just that one click. But that's not all we have for reporting. What I'm going to share next is the number one most requested feature for marketers. First, I want to try something here. I'm going to ask you all a question. I want to take your temperature here. Who feels like their marketing department doesn't get enough credit? It's the truth. Despite everything you do, despite all the leads you generate, all the demand, all the awareness, sometimes marketers can feel invisible. What can we do to respond to this? What you've asked us for is you've asked us for proof of the ROI of everything that you do. Just look at this. The most intuitive, the most exhaustive, the most powerful multi-touch attribution reporting available on the market. Who's excited for this?
This is it. This is the key to showing how all the pieces fit together. And in the immortal words of the great philosopher, Jonathan Van Ness, you are strong. You are a Kelly Clarkson song. You've got this. He's kind of my hero, and, uh, and he's totally right. You've got this. You've got, with our new multi-touch attribution reporting, the power of HubSpot to create amazing reports that give you the proof you need. You can now see all the way, for example, from uh, website first touch all the way through to closed deal. We'll also show you how the individual assets you're creating lead directly to revenue across email, blog, landing pages, you name it, across entire campaigns. It's time to show what's working and get some credit for your hard work. So we heard you. We're making sure our tools have what you need as your business grows, from the new app marketplace to advocacy and automation, multiple lead scores, didn't even get to that today, a uh, lot of other stuff, attribution reporting. So for everyone who needed HubSpot to do more, Who's excited for everything we just saw? Okay, let's talk about founders. Let's talk about founders for a second. A lot of people think of startup founders as jet setters in cashmere sweatsuits, you know, driving brand new Teslas in their penthouses, sipping imported matcha tea, looking out across the desert thinking big, you know, deep thoughts. The reality of being a founder <laughs> is sleeping under your desk. It's making ramen in a coffee pot. It's booking a room at the Marriott when your office literally catches fire. So for founders, this next section is just for you. Thomas Berry from Picmonic said it best. As a startup, we're always looking for new tools that will help us grow and to make an impact on a smaller budget. So we believe that growth, especially when you're starting out, shouldn't break the bank. When we made our CRM free five years ago, we thought it was the right thing to do. You see, to us, growing better means building businesses in a sustainable way. So we wanted to continue to invest here. Investing in building tools that can help small businesses, early stage startups thrive and grow, especially in those extra lean early times. Let's meet one. Let's meet Honeycomb, an early stage startup from right here in Boston. With Honeycomb, any brand or community or organization can launch their own custom social network. I think what's beautiful about how we approach social networks is that it's about real human things. It's about shared values, a shared experience, a shared uh, belief, as opposed to just you know casual friends and, and followers. We're definitely a startup. We've grown a lot. We've worked with Lady Gaga. She was actually one of our first clients. HubSpot has helped us a lot while working on marketing and sales because we've been able to utilize and take advantage of your free products as well as the paid platform. Our relationship with HubSpot started with the free CRM and being able to track 
the leads that, that we were nurturing through the sales process. HubSpot has become our daily Bible database center. Um, everything that we do day to day revolves around HubSpot and the data that we're getting from it. Email marketing is a new free tool for us. We were extremely happy to see that come. A lot of the email marketing tools out there are extremely expensive to you know market new products that we put into the, the platform to existing customers has become a lot easier for us uh, and a lot more economical and it produces really beautiful emails. One of the things that I actually watch on the daily is the chatbot um, because that's our, our first touch uh, with the customer. So just being able to see naturally what are people looking for and what are they expecting on the platform, that's been very big, not only on the sales side, but for engineering because we get to see what are people really looking for and how can we help them best. Honeycomb uses the ad connector really to understand where everything started what that first touch point with that customer was. So just using all those tools all together have helped us create the most bang for our marketing dollar. We want to have hands-on experience to understand how how is this product going to affect our company. And the free tool really helps us do that because we can put it into the system and see how it works uh, instead of making a decision based on a sales pitch. Like HubSpot is offering a powerful marketing sales and success platform for small companies like mine. Honeycomb shares that same value that we can offer something really powerful and beautiful that really helps people at minimal cost. Let's give it up for Honeycomb. Cool team, cool product, and they're doing great stuff. We're psyched to be part of their story from the very first chapter. In working with these early stage startups like Honeycomb, we knew that investing in our CRM was going to help companies of all sizes grow. We've seen that today. So when we thought about which tools to make free, we decided to go right for the core. Let's make the core stuff that every business needs to do, make it free. You can see where I'm going with this. We mentioned this in the video. Two borderline insane additions to our free suite of CRM tools. The first one, we've moved ads into the free CRM. Now you can do cross-network advertising and you can track the performance all from one place. You can do it for free. And that's not all. This is a biggie. Been at this a while. I never thought that I would see this day. Free email from HubSpot right in our free CRM. Check this out. It's so beautiful too, honestly. It's just gorgeous. Our all-new drag-and-drop email editor is super intuitive, built from the ground up. So whether it's your first marketing email ever or your first of the day, you're in great, great shape. Email deliverability also is sky high, 98.21%. If you're curious whether that's something to be excited about, I'll let you Google it on your own time. It certainly is. So with HubSpot's free tools, you can now do everything from engaging with a contact on website or email, you can live chat, you can schedule meetings, you can create help desk tickets, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Look at everything you can do for free in HubSpot today. That's just remarkable, isn't it? I saw all the iPhones and Androids come up to take a picture. You should take a picture of this. We're very proud of it. All right, we've covered a ton of ground here today, but uh, I could only scratch the surface. So I encourage everyone in the room to spend time with our general managers. Now, this is my team. I get to work with very closely on a day-to-day -day basis. 
It's our product leaders for marketing hub, sales hub, service hub, and our ecosystem, our entire platform. So tomorrow they're each going to do a deep dive on their part of the product. We're going to geek out. If you're an extrovert, you can go shake their hand and put a face to the name. I know they would love to meet you. They've worked really hard on these presentations. Go check these out. Okay, for everyone, not just the folks here today at Inbound, but also the folks on the live stream, you can head to HubSpot.com new to see everything we talked about today and a lot more we didn't have time to get to. Thank you for being a great audience. We've made a lot of progress this year. I'm excited to see what happens. See you next year and have a great Inbound. I will be sharing a number of metrics today that I hope can provide a bit of additional insight into the business. You should not expect that we're going to provide these metrics on a normal quarterly basis. I'm sure that's not shocking to most of you. All right. We did try this three times just before we got up here. Okay, I'm going to go to plan B. Ah, all right, here we go. Um, hold on one second. All right, let's start with a high-level view of the business. HubSpot, it's a pretty good business. We continue to deliver strong, consistent top-line growth. Over the past four years, our revenue has grown at a compound annual growth rate of 35%. At the same time, we've expanded our operating margins by 13 points, which is better than the framework for growth and profitability that we have shared with you in the past. We deliver this growth by engaging with millions of visitors to our web properties and converting them into active users and customers. At the end of Q2, we had over 400,000 weekly active free users of our CRM, growing 45% in the last year. We had almost 65,000 paying customers, growing at 35%. And we had more than 24,000 multi-product customers, growing about 75% year over year. Notably, we're not dependent on any single source to drive this growth. We now operate nine offices globally, and we generate about 40% of our revenue outside the United States. With the growth we've seen from our sales hub product over the last few years, and the successful introduction of our service hub, those products are fast approaching 20% of our install base. And our partner channel has continued to represent 40% of revenue. Importantly, the strong growth and profitability has translated into strong free cash flow generation that continues to strengthen our balance sheet. HubSpot ended the first half of 2019 with nearly $1 billion in cash that will continue to invest organically in the business and will provide us with a lot of flexibility to evaluate 
inorganic opportunities. Okay, let's take a step back and look at the impact of our investments in the suite. As you heard from JD this morning, the big effort in 2018 was completing the north-south and east-west expansion of the suite. Under the covers, there are two complementary forces that are driving our business. First, we're getting lots of customers through our freemium motion that tend to have lower ASP. And second, we are growing these customers over time through upsell and cross-sell motions. Let's see how these individual motions are performing. At the low end of the portfolio, we've taken a ton of friction out of the customer buying experience. It's allowed us to attract a large and growing base of starter customers that come with a customer acquisition cost that's a fraction of our traditional sales model. So how's that motion going? I'd say it's going pretty well. We're approaching 25,000 starter customers, which is up 150% year over year. Marketing Starter has been fueling this growth. Marketing Starter customers have grown an impressive 400% since the relaunch of the product last July. Our expanding free and starter customer base is also key to growing the flywheel within HubSpot. We like this freemium motion because we're adding value by allowing our customers to use our software before extracting value, which is a better experience for our customers and make them, makes them more likely to stay and grow with HubSpot. It's also a more efficient go-to-market model. We estimate that the cost to acquire a customer through this motion is approximately a tenth of the cost of our traditional inbound sales motion. Secondly, our starter customers are more likely to buy more HubSpot products over time than our traditional leads. Over the last year, our starter customer upgrades have increased 150%. And if you look at the growth of just the upgrade to professional and enterprise additions from those starter customers, the growth is even higher. We've also been investing to remove the friction and demonstrate the value of the entire HubSpot suite of products. That motion has also gone quite well. Customer adoption of multiple products has continued a steady climb, and we're now approaching 40% of HubSpot's customer base using two or more products. We also have a small but fast-growing number of customers who are adopting the full suite. These complementary forces have introduced some quarter-to-quarter -quarter noise in our traditional KPIs. While our customer account growth has remained strong, the net result has been a more muted growth of ASRPC than we would have traditionally expected. On the right-hand side, we've isolated the ASRPC of our sales hub and of our marketing hub, XStarter. And as you can see, these ASRPCs have, have continued to expand nicely. 
Now let's talk about our portfolio of products. We'll start with Marketing Hub. At the end of Q2, Marketing Hub was a $530 million ARR business, growing in the mid to low 20s. Marketing Hub is our most mature product, and we're focused on getting the freemium motion and Marketing Hub really cranking. In mid-June, we introduced free email and free ads, and we had 26,000 free email signups in July alone. We're also adding robust functionality at the high end, like drill downs and multi-factor attribution reporting, so our enterprise customers can stay and grow with HubSpot longer. Our sales hub business has doubled from $50 million in ARR a year ago to over $100 million in ARR at the end of Q2 and it continues to grow about 100% annually. Sales Hub is a product where we are still adding a lot of new features. You just heard Christopher talk about many of them. We know what's on the roadmap and we're executing against it. With all the improvements we've made in Sales Hub, we are increasing the price of Sales Professional. Beginning on November 1st, the price of Sales Hub Pro is increasing to $500 or $100 per seat. We launched Service Hub last year and it grew faster than any of our other products. At the end of Q2, Service Hub was a $14 million ARR business with more than 5,000 customers and it's still growing really fast. When we launched it, Service Hub was a great fit for our existing customers who needed a solution to manage tickets. The majority of our Service Hub customers are multi-product customers. What we're doing now is investing in Service Hub to make it a robust product that can stand on its own. And we're doing this because we think that Service Hub can be as big or bigger of an opportunity than marketing or sales. Okay, now let's look at the investments we're making to set up HubSpot for strong, durable growth. As you heard from both Brian and JD, 2019 has been a year we focused on investments in areas that are really bringing value to our customers. Many of these investments are not designed to optimize near-term financial performance, but we believe that solving for the customer is entirely aligned with solving for the shareholder over the long term. I'll give you an example. The investments we're making in our main sale initiative have likely resulted in fewer new product introductions in 2019. That said, we believe these investments will enable us to increase the efficiency and the effectiveness of our R&D efforts and allow us to speed up innovation and create a better customer experience over time. Likewise, the investments in our freemium go-to-market are probably causing some cannibalization in our professional and enterprise additions as customers start at lower ASPs. 
but it removes a ton of friction in getting started with HubSpot, and it creates a much more modern buying experience. Finally, it takes time and investment to build the ecosystem scale that we believe we will, that will enable us to monetize our platform over time. And we think this is the right solution for HubSpot and for our customers. We feel good about these trade-offs because we fundamentally believe the opportunity for growth in the mid-market is really big. While we're super happy with our 65,000 customers, as you can see, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We'll tackle the opportunity by continuing to sell our existing hubs, by entering new markets, by launching new hubs, and by growing the ecosystem of product and services built around HubSpot. And as we think about the opportunity ahead, we try to ground ourselves in our long-term financial model. A few thoughts here. First, I want you to think about the long-term targets as just that, long-term. You saw in the opening video today that we are trying to build a big, successful company, and we're focused on investing for the long-term. Second, you can see that we're sitting at the high end of the range of R&D spending as a percentage of revenue. In the near term, I actually think that number will go up a bit. As we continue to drive innovation in the product, we think that's the right decision for us to drive sustainable growth for HubSpot. And lastly, we've made steady progress towards our long-term profitability over the past few years. We doubled operating profits in the first half of 2019 versus the prior year. On our Q2 call, you heard both Brian and I say that this expansion was more than we would have hoped. And we also shared that this is primarily because we got behind on hiring during the first half of 2019. We continue to expect that we're gonna catch up on hiring in the back half of the year. This will position us well to execute in 2020, but it will create a headwind to profitability. And while we're still in the very early stages of planning, and certainly anything can change, uh, we currently do not anticipate incremental leverage next year as a result of our second half hiring and the continued investment in R&D. We wanna make sure that we're making the right decisions for the long-term benefit of the company. There's another important reason that we're not speeding toward our long-term financial targets. Our core unit economics remain very strong. We reviewed this last year, and our unit economics now are stronger than when the company went public. And while the long-term opportunity that we see is gonna drive the bigger decisions that we're making, our near-term investments are grounded in our unit economics, and they're delivering five times LTV to CAC. So let's wrap up with a few takeaways before we open it up to Q&A. 
HubSpot's financial performance continues to be both strong and consistent. Our customer-focused R&D is paying dividends across our portfolio, and you should look for further sweet innovation and ecosystem development to open up new opportunities for future growth. And finally, we believe that our healthy financial position will provide us with a lot of flexibility for both organic and inorganic growth opportunities. Thank you. Brian, Joe, do you guys are right here? Mark? We can hear you. Oh, but I don't know if the live stream can hear you, though. Is that working? Try again. Thank you. Mark Murphy with JP Morgan. Uh, curious what would have to happen for Sales Cloud to clock in again at 100% in the coming year. Kate, I wasn't sure um, if you were alluding to that possibility or maybe that is a little uh, outside the realm. And then as well, uh, launching contact deduplication, some of the pricing is based upon uh, contact volumes. W would you expect any, any possible impact from that as people wipe out some of the contacts in their, in their database? Sure, I can start. Maybe um, the second part of that question is like we do actually encourage our customers to, uh, you know, keep their databases tidy. Um, and we've had that question before, like when GDPR came up, right? Are you guys going to see an impact on that? Um, I don't think I don't think we'll see a, a significant impact on that. I think it's just part of the, <clears throat> you know, the sort of overall hygiene of what our customers should do. That said, it does rhyme with some of the stuff that that Kate talked about, which is we're not trying to figure out ways to stick it to our customer and charge them for contacts that aren't valuable. That's definitely not the long-term way to grow better. So, you know, we're focused on sort of enabling our customers to use the tool in powerful and easy and simple ways. So that's, that's where we're going to continue to invest there. Uh, as, as far as you want to talk about the sales? <coughs> I'll just start okay. on the sales hub. The numbers that we showed in terms of growth rates are really reflective of sort of the current growth rate of that hub. Uh, in order to continue to grow, we'd obviously need to, at 100%, we'd obviously need to have uh, really strong ongoing new sales performance. And I think it's not limited by opportunity. I think it will be limited really by the capacity uh, that we have within our own sort of sales and go-to-market organizations. Yeah, well, I think uh, there's sort of two things with the sales uh, hub that are both power. You saw that we have about 37% of our customers using uh, multiple products. That should grow. That's an opportunity that I still think is, is there. Uh, and then the sales hub continues to be, you know, our primary uh, driver of that sort of freemium touchless motion. So I think both of those are, are healthy motions. Obviously, growth gets harder at larger numbers. But that's a real big growth driver for us, and I think it'll continue to be a big, our big, one of our biggest growth drivers in 2020. 
I think, Samad Samana with Jeffries. Um, so, Kate, obviously I have to ask the question, if you're talking about flat margins for 2020, how should we think about that in the context of growth on the other side of that equation? And then uh, just a follow-up question. Yeah, I think that's a backdoor question around 2020 guidance. Um, and we are obviously not going to share the sort of top-line thoughts until we get uh, to the appropriate point in time. Um, that said, I think you know, we wanted to be very upfront with you around the fact that we want to continue to grow this business for the long term. And we see sort of the bow wave of hiring in the back half of the year and the pressure that it will put on 2020 margins. And so we wanted to make sure uh, that this group is also aware of that phenomenon. Great. And then, Brian, maybe one for you in terms of monetizing the, the ecosystem that you've built. I think that that's really an interesting opportunity. We've seen it with other software companies, whether it's Salesforce.com, uh, Shopify with their um, app uh, ISP partners. So I'm curious if maybe you could talk a little bit more about if you've started talking to partners about that path to monetization and how you see maybe the mutual benefit and, and maybe the models that you're thinking about. Yeah, we're talking a lot about that. Um, I think HubSpot's a really interesting company, uh, obviously. Uh, <laughs> like we're on this, leadership, I would add. <laughs> we're on this path, on the suite, and we've got three hubs. And those three hubs are great. Uh, there's tons more work to do in all three. Just like still tons of opportunity, like the sales hub, the sales hub enterprise product, tons of stuff in our heads that we're working on actively that will go in there. So more opportunity there. There's opportunity for more hubs. And then I think our ecosystem is a major opportunity, and there's pieces of that. There's the agency ecosystem that's going great, lots of opportunities there. There's the app ecosystem also going great. Uh, we do a nice job of monetizing the agency ecosystem. I think you'll see over time we'll start monetizing the app ecosystem. We want to get that flywheel really cranking fast, so we don't want to... We don't want to put any unnecessary friction between you. Let's say you're a, a, an app, potential app partner. You want to build some app for our CRM system. We want to make it so easy for you to jump on and start selling your app. We don't want to start taking margin now. But eventually, I think we'll get really good at that. We'll talk more in the future about that idea of ecosystem. We think of it more broadly than just agencies and application developers. There's more types of partners out there, more monetization opportunities. Where we're really bullish on that as a next, as a big wave of growth for us in the future. Thanks, Brad Sills from B of A Merrill. Uh, obviously, a lot of investments in in kind of more free with with ads and and the email. You already have this wide funnel already of 440,000 uh, weekly active users in CRM, so the, the funnel should be widening, more velocity coming in. How are you guys managing kind of the triggers for the upgrade? I know a lot of that is self-serve, but what are some of the things you look for and what are some of the learnings you've had in the freemium channel? What's worked and what are some of the things you, you expect going forward? Sure. Uh, something we think a lot about is how do we make that free layer super powerful, pulling people in and then pulling people up through. We feel like it's still also quite early in that game. I was talking to someone over at Dropbox last week. They have 600 million active users, so we're a drop in the bucket. And CRM's not like a niche product, kind of everybody needs CRM. Maybe not as many people as would need a Dropbox, so it's a huge opportunity. That's why we're investing. We're making that free CRM more powerful. We want to make it kind of a standard system out there. The more users of that we get, the more upgrades we get, the more users of that we get, the more partners we get, and that flywheel starts spinning too. So we're 
We're excited about what's going on. By no means do we feel like we have that figured out, the, the tripwires and whatnot. And I talked in my comments about Atlassian. Atlassian is really good. They have this B2C style freemium models. So do we. If you look inside our marketing department, it looks more like Stitch Fix and SAP. And we're really focused on active users and getting that motion going. And we're still early. We spend tons of time and energy making sure those tripwires are well thought out such that people can get lots and lots of value. But if they're growing, they're a 30-person company, they're a legit company, how do we design it such that when they're getting more sophisticated, they need to trip into those products? So early, but uh, making progress on it. Yeah, the one thing I'd add on that is that I showed you guys the chart earlier of the user growth. And if you really look at that closely, you see some interesting things. You see there are periods where it just takes off, and then it's sort of the growth sort of levels out a little bit, and it takes off again. And what you're seeing there is the experimentation that's happening on our team. What if we did pull this down? What if we made this change and everything? And so it's really a sort of a, a, an incremental, you know, uh, I won't call it guessing game, but it's a, it's a you know, these they're building – the, the, the capabilities to drive this, this growth. And I think you just get better and better at it. And we look at companies like Atlassian or other companies that have this type of a model. And <clears throat> I think there's still a lot of improvement that we can make. Hey, guys. Um, good afternoon. Stan Zlonsky, Morgan Stanley. Um, a couple of questions from my end on, uh, on the partner ecosystem. Um, are you making any changes to uh, partner tiers uh, or you know, the, the, the kind of tiers that you have and what partners need to do um, to get into those tiers? And then I have a quick follow-up. Yeah. Let me answer that. Okay, so a uh, lot's changed for us. As you know, we used to have one product, a marketing product, and so sort of one agency type, a, a marketing agency. And now we have a suite and we're building a platform, so it's about a broader partner ecosystem. So we're making a bunch of uh, – changes associated with that. One is just really straightforward with tiers. We're, made, we're, do, we're recalibrating that, and that's sort of like the north and south of partners, right? We want, we're, we're adding a new tier called the elite tier with, with higher requirements to achieve that tier and therefore more benefits. And that's sort of the, that, that axis, if you will, is how we figure out the partner's like investment in us and then our investment in them back. That's, that's what that tier is for. The other thing we're doing is sort of going in, in east and west parlance. The east and west here is like partners are going to need to be able to differentiate themselves based on not only their tiers but on their capabilities. And so we're introducing certification or credentialing for partners, for partners who are specialists at advanced CRM implementation, partners who are specialists at CMS implementation, you know, on and on. We'll, we'll, we'll add that. So you can think about the evolution of the partner ecosystem as sort of uh, keeping up with the way the company is evolving and our offerings are evolving and our platforms evolving. So you'll see that, you know, on a multi-step journey. But this year we are making a few changes to the to the tiers in specific. Are you adding uh, any uh, uh, tiers at the low end of the of the partner? Well, what we've done is we've added a solution provider tier, which is sort of almost like a freemium version for partners. So to to date, when we had a marketing uh, solution you the partners had to buy our marketing uh, software and then get onboarded with their with our marketing onboarding and it was a, it was a bit of a you know a commitment they had to step up and that made sense from the perspective of where we were in this new model there's a ways for partners to get started at a much lower cost with our starter edition um, with some basic uh, onboarding some less human touch uh, they start by being almost like a referral partner and then from there, we can figure out, and they can figure out if it's a good fit and move them up into the sort of uh, traditional solution provider part of the, of the, of the market. 
Got it. Thank you. And, and um, just the, the follow-up on um, the Connect platform, right, and the marketplace and everything you have. Um, as we move forward, right, how are you thinking about, you know, potentially monetizing, right? You know, we, we've all looked at software for a very long time, and you have uh, companies like, you know, like AppExchange, um, Salesforce AppExchange, right? Like they, they do take, you know, small take rates. Is that how you guys are thinking about it moving forward? Thank you. Sure, I, I kind of answered that one before, but at some point I think we'll do that. We, what we don't want to do is slow down the – it's like we have this big customer flywheel, and then there's another flywheel with gears on it that hook into the gears in the customer flywheel, and it's this app partner uh, platform, and it's going well. Like tonight, Darmesh and I are hosting, like, all of our top app, exchange, app uh, partners at our house, and it's going to be great. But we want to keep that going. We want to make it really easy to join the program. We don't want to make it punitive. We want to keep that friction really low. So for now, we're not going to charge. But you should expect that over the long haul, that's another revenue stream for us. And just one quick note on that, too, is that one thing that's, I think, different about HubSpot, because we're focused kind of in the SMB space, you know, there's 5,000-plus marketing and sales tech companies out there, so we want that kind of 1,000-flowers-blooming model. So they, like everyone that's building software for our industry should be integrating into HubSpot. And we think there's more opportunity than just doing a directory or providing some sort of marketing assistance. Being a software company ourselves and having gone through, it's like, okay, can we use our platform and offer that up to these, you know, software companies that are sub-100 people and actually create value more than just the listing in a, in a directory somewhere? We think there's opportunity to actually add value. Um, Hi, uh, Jen Lowe from UBS. Thanks for doing this today. Um, in JD's presentation, you talked about, you know, potentially having a few new hubs over the next few years. Kate, you talked a lot about R&D as well, but there the focus in the near term seems a bit more around main sale and around, um, you know, platform investments. Uh, and then there's clearly incremental dollars too. But as we think about that waiting, you talked about main sales potentially pushing out some of the other new product innovation you might do. How do we sort of square that with the idea of having new hubs in the future versus some of these more platform and infrastructure-centric investments being made today? Well, I think the platform and infrastructure investments are actually enabling investments for us to keep building on top of our platform. Um, you know, I think we, as I mentioned in my talk, you know, we had an outage early in the year, and it was a little bit of a wake-up call. And I think we learned that uh, we have to have a rock-solid platform to build on. That's point number one. Point number two is the way we build software is, pr is pretty interesting as, uh, as well. We build sort of a framework that other products can get built on. Like, and that's, that's great for the way we bring products to market. It's also great for our customers because once you've learned how to do workflows in HubSpot, you know how to do it across all the products. Once you learn how to use the editor in HubSpot, you, learn, you know how to do it across all the products. And then when we introduce additional hubs or other things, we use those, those building blocks, if you will, that framework um, to deliver that software to the market. So you get the benefit of a really solid, robust platform. You get the benefit of scale and efficiency across those frameworks, and you get the benefit of usability. So I think this year was an important year to really set us up down that path. Over here, uh, it's uh, Brent Bracelin with uh, KeyBank. Um, a couple of questions, if I could. Let's start out with this idea of expanding, you know, beyond three hubs. I know this is a three to five year vision, but as we think about the three hubs today, I'll put it in that front office category. You know, sales, marketing, service. What's the aspiration? Is the aspiration as bold as saying we're going to 
look at maybe back office functions for this environment? Uh, what's the scope of the opportunity looking at? And obviously, given the experience market fit focus uh, that you have today, what are customers asking for? Um, obviously, you're not going to pre-announce products, but just give us an idea for what are those hit lists of, of, of things that investors are, uh, or customers are asking for. Sure. Uh, I would echo what J.D. was saying earlier. We did uh, – the outage rattled us at the end of March. I think it appropriately rattled us. And we looked at our platform. We said, what do we need to do to dramatically lower the likelihood of that ever happening again? And if it happens, how do we dramatically lower the blast radius of it? And so we've, we've taken a couple steps back so we could go two, three steps forward. And uh, it's been a concerted effort on the dev team this year. And I sleep much better at night. Uh, I feel better about the long-term prospects of HubSpot. I feel better about the way we build products. And uh, it's good. Just, just working off a much more solid foundation. And I'm in it for the long haul. You know, I've been at it 13 years. I'm in it for the very long haul, so it just makes perfect sense that we would have done that. Uh, having said that, I do think our foundation is pretty, getting pretty darn solid. Uh, and like JD said, down below the foundation are these set of shared foundational services, whether it's workflows or, or web pages or email or messaging. And we can weave those together in very creative ways to build more applications. And so when I think of HubSpot, you know, three, four years down the road, there's definitely more than one additional hub that'll come out. We have them in our heads. Uh, and I would say over the next three, four years, at least what's in my mind is front office. We think there's plenty of wood left to chop in front office. We have a very small percentage of the overall installed base. Uh, so lots and lots of work left to do in front office. I, I doubt you'd see us take a jump into HR or accounting, something like that in the next few years. Helpful. And then uh, just as a follow-up building on that narrative, on one hand, you're signaling you're going to kind of go above that 18% longer-term target R&D. But on the other hand, you've also kind of hinted at maybe evaluating inorganic ways to maybe accelerate, you know, new hires, all sorts of things. So how do we balance that as you think about the build-by strategy? Yeah, I can take that one if you want. Sure. Um, Great. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can debate me. We can have this debate right here. Uh, I, I actually think, um, you know, honestly, we – I feel like we're more ready to consider inorganic strategies uh, now than we ever were for a couple of reasons. One is the, the platform point that Brian was just, ma just making. Um, as you have that platform, it starts to be easier to integrate uh, applications um, because that's what the platform does. It enables us to do it with, with APIs, and we're building our products with that in mind. So I think that's a, that was a big step forward. So, uh, you know, I think the, 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 those opportunities opened uh, for us now. To the part of your second question, it goes a little bit to this, like what are our customers asking us to do? It's interesting. We don't have a lot of customers. I've not encountered a customer that said, can you please rebuild my accounting system? They all kind of have accounting systems they like, but what they're saying is, can you please integrate to my accounting system? And we're spending a lot of time and effort uh, to that as well. But we still think about, and this echoes exactly what Brian said, our mission as helping millions of organizations grow better, and that's largely in the, in the front office. But that integration piece is going to be important both to our customers and to some of our growth strategies going forward. Great. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for some insights. Uh, uh, really enjoyed your presentations. Uh, helpful. Um, two questions, one for Kate uh, <clears throat> specifically. Uh, you're talking about uh, 
the guidance in terms of operating margins for 2020, I guess directionally, uh, which I know you're not talking about giving guidance beyond that, but I guess what you have given before is the growth scenario where, you know, above 30 percent, 30 percent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, are we looking, should we directionally be thinking about that's what you're tar targeting is more the higher growth, the directional part, or, or are these investments more just table stakes, just to get the product, the platform up to snuff so you don't have any more of the Q1 outages? Uh, that's the first one. Yeah. Um, I think that framework continues to be a helpful framework. I think that you should not look at it, though, in every single period and expect it to to linearly match up. And so I started the conversation by saying we've added 13 points of leverage over the last three or four years, and it's above that framework. I think you should look at that framework over a couple of year period of time, and we will endeavor to continue uh, to keep within that framework, but maybe over just a little bit of a longer context. I might, can I just add to that? So I think about it in short term and long term, and I hope this is okay. Short term, we grew really, we we're growing really fast this year, and we kind of outkicked our coverage, to use a, uh, a, a football metaphor. Like, we didn't... By the way, I have no idea what that means. That means you punt, you, your punt is very long, and your, your, uh, your, your coverage okay. team can't make it down there, and so they get a long run yeah. back. Anyway, we outkicked it. <laughs> so we didn't hire as fast as we had expected, and it didn't keep up with the growth. So our margin expansion this year was greater than we thought. And I think as we catch up, our margin expansion next year will go the other way. The long term, I thought it was a good question. I think Mark asked, or maybe it was Samad. Uh, it, there's a trade-off here because we think we're trading off and investing for long-term growth. I don't, you know, we won't give uh, guidance for next quarter or next year or whatever, but I'm pretty confident, as based on the numbers and the data that we showed you guys, with the return we're seeing on our R&D, that by doing this, given the market size, given the momentum we have, uh, we're going to, over the next three to five years, have a higher uh, growth rate than we would have had we not sort of stepped back and make some of these investments. All right, second question is a more high level. This is for Brian or Dimash or, or either of you. Uh, entertaining presentations that you, both of you had. Um, you know, you talked about uh, stuff that's happening, uh, the disruption, companies, you listed examples of companies that, like Brian, you're using now that, you know, replace stuff you, uh, companies, products you used before. What's, I guess to say that you guys aren't like forward thinkers, you guys are acad academics, you're forward thinking, uh, and you're early adapters, and it's going to take a long time for, for society, for the consumers, for um, uh, the, the buying public to catch up. I mean, the measure took you how many years to, to finally jump in the pool? Brian, how long did it take for you to convince people even help them understand what inbound marketing was. So that's a more high level question for you guys. Thank you. Go for it. I can answer it. I would, I would say, yeah, we we're, we're tend to be out front. That's the point of the presentation. We want to stimulate you to think a little bit. And what's the future look like? We're trying to predict the future. We've had some success at that. Um, I, I think I'm largely, I, I wouldn't have done it today unless uh, I thought I was largely right about that idea of so many of the disruptions I'm seeing happening, like product market fit, of course you need to get there, but 
if you get a little bit of a product advantage relative to your competition, the competition is really good at adding features, you know, really good at that. You just get HubSpot. We're not like wildly successful. We're a pretty successful company. Why are we successful? We have a great product, but we have a killer channel and we have killer SEO and we have a freemium model. It's not just about what we sell, it's how we sell it. And we want to sell it even better in the future. And I just think that's the way to do it. And so I'm pounding any table that, uh, that will be in front of me, trying to encourage our customers to do the same thing. I'm trying to build a platform that will, that will enable our customers and our partners to pull that type of vision off, because I think that's how you win in the future. Just and one quick comment. Um, you know, Brian said I think lots of smart things, but I think one of the keenest insights is the, it doesn't take, it's just, for, it's for mere mortals. So this sounds like this is not AI, this is not blockchain, this is, you know what? Like normal B2B companies, people are buying, are going to expect this kind of experience. They want you know, to be able to self-service. They want to be able to put their website up. They want to be able to do these, this is not rocket science. So it's, this is not, oh, we're building things that's 20 years out. This is like, they should already be doing it. Their customers have already appreciated. We're trying to make it easier so they can kind of get on board instead of waiting five or 10 years. So. We, we don't think it's that far out. We think customer expectations today um, are, are ahead of where, where the market should be. Uh, Peter Levine with uh, Evercore. So I have a question. So you announced a number of new products or features for the freemium across sales, marketing, service. So at what point is there a paywall where you, know, you want to entice your customers to obviously up, you know, upsell your partners, but at, at what point do you kind of make that debate internally to – it's a hot debate, as I was talking about before. There's sort of two ways to come at this problem. Um, there's one is a usage-type paywall. So, like, for example, with the free email, you can send 2,000 emails uh, a month, and they're branded with, with uh, HubSpot. Uh, others are functionality paywalls, and we experiment with both. Um, you know, we try to figure out – the first thing is we want to make sure that that free product is actually adding value to our customers, that they can experience what it's going to be like, the power of the HubSpot platform. And so we want to make sure that the usage levels are right and the functionality is real so that don't, they don't hit that paywall right away. That's just a bad experience, right? And then what we want to do is that's how we sort of uh, figure out which customers are ready for – more features, and we try to do that in a very light-touch, product-driven way as well. We try to use their their own their behavior in the app to figure out, oh, you're ready to try your first workflow. You're ready to, um, you know, set up sequences for your sales team, et cetera. So in addition to those usage paywalls, we figure out where the functionality makes sense. And we go back and forth on, on a lot of that, and we run tests about that. But... Um, it's, a, it's a science, honestly. The, the folks that do this use a ton of data. Um, they have control of the, do, the, the knobs and dials in the product, and, uh, you know, we just keep cranking at it. Just one quick note to kind of intersect the uh, app ecosystem questions earlier. One of the nice things about the freemium model and having this large free user base, so we've had the usage-based thing, we've had functionality-based thing. In the future, you can imagine an integrations-based thing as well. It says, oh, you can use N integrations or these particular ones, but once you need... These kinds, like you need more than three or more than four, that can be a trigger point that we haven't historically kind of tapped into. So as that number of integrations grows, our opportunity to kind of monetize through just getting more upgrades on the free product, I think, would work because we've seen the patterns. Hi, it's uh, Drew Beja with Granahan. The uh, hiring, uh, just talk a little bit about the metrics you've seen um, where you've underhired, if you will, just to kind of quantify that a bit, and is it, 
you're, and you're already growing at a dizzying rate, dizzy rate, uh, dizzy rate um, in terms of, of, of count. And I'm just wondering what gives you the confidence in this sort of economy that you can accelerate that, or is it just you've got to pay up for engineers and your, your body count's not going up, it's just you're paying more for them? I can start. Uh, if you look at the headcount growth, uh, it's far less than the revenue growth. Uh, we want it to be less, but we don't want it to be as far less. The interesting thing about the uh, the miss on headcount was it's not just engineering; it's sort of across the board, and uh, and we think about it as very. I like Darmesh's slide. It's it's like there's there's kind of two big flywheels. I know I'm a flywheel guy. There's two big flywheels inside of HubSpot: it's customer flywheel, there's an employee flywheel, and the employee flywheel is very much a function of. How do, we, how do we have an offering for employees that's kind of like we think about the product offering? How do we give it – how do we have a killer culture that they want to come to work here, that it's stimulating, that they learn a lot, uh, that they're skilling up, that they like their manager, all that good stuff. We spend a lot of time on that, and I, we're good at a lot of stuff. We're not as good at other stuff. We're good at that. Uh, we're very good, I think, at culture. Uh, our employee NPS scores are very high if you look at us in Glassdoor. And so that, I think, is the hard part of recruiting, because if that's broken, then you're hiring crappy people. You just The good people won't come to you. So we kind of screwed up, I think, the part that is solvable, that's just we need bodies out there, recruiters, to do the hard kind of grinding work of recruiting. And we fell behind on recruiters, fell behind on recruiters, we fell behind on recruiting. So I'm actually pretty bullish, and Jamie may have something yeah. to say. I'm pretty bullish on our ability to catch up. Uh, I think we have the, the base foundation in really good shape. Yeah. I think I can say as the chief operating officer, we just didn't operate well on <laughs> our, our, uh, our recruiting funnel, if you will, our recruiting flywheel, I guess we would call it. Um, and we've just picked it up, you know. I think, we're, I think we're in good shape. The product is healthy. The product is great. Um, we particularly find ourselves with a big home field advantage in Boston, I would argue. We have a pretty growing home field advantage in Dublin, which is our second largest office. We're opening a brand new office there. Um, Darmesh talked about in his talk about the remote uh, work growing. So I, I feel like we have all the pieces in place. Are you getting paid by the football reference? <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, I wish because I'd be doing quite well. Hey, uh, Chris Merwin with Goldman Sachs. Um, I just wanted to ask about the multi-product customers. seems like there's been a lot of traction there, closing in on 40%. So, you know, when you think about taking that even higher over time, maybe 50% plus, what are the main drivers of that? Is that just all the investments you're making in, in, in product? You know, is it just sales? I mean, I'm sure it's both, but just maybe diving a bit deeper on what the main drivers of that are. Um, and then specifically as it relates to, to Service Hub, I think, Kate, you might have made a comment that that could be as big as marketing over time. Yeah, it's a little bit more competitive there. Zendesk is certainly there. You know, SMB even up to enterprise. So, so how do you think about you know getting from point A to point B on that as well? I'll take it. Okay, I'll start. Uh, okay, so the interesting thing about getting 50% plus of uh, of our customers on the growth stack, our growth suite, using more than one product. Um, is you kind of have a humidifier, dehumidifier thing there. As, as fast as we get brand new starter customers using one of the products, that brings the average down. What we really want to do is we want to create sort of this river of customers who are starting uh, with one product and then we're upselling. So we don't obsess too much about the percentage. I do think it's going to go up over time. Um, but uh, what we want is we want to get that sort of great river 
running through our business where lots of customers are starting for free, they're upgrading the starter, and then we cross-sell them. That, that would be sort of the motion that we want to have there. Um, on, second question on the, on the service hub, uh, as I mentioned in my remarks, the, the real power of that service hub offering when we launched it and why it grew so fast was it was just such a natural extension for our customers to, if they had one particular use case, uh, which is I need tickets. I need to be able to manage tickets inside of, uh, of HubSpot for customers I've signed up through, through services. Um, and that's worked really well. I think as we grow that product line and it becomes a, a larger and larger opportunity, the magic is still going to be in that one plus one equals three. That's really where a lot of the power of our platform, the differentiation comes in, and as well as what, what Brian would talk about. It's like we want to sell. It's how we sell that is also how we're going to win. The other thing that I would add is, I think we figured out the playbooks for some of the cross-sell motions. JD talked about the cross-sell motion of the service hub, and I think that playbook is one that we just really know very well and we're executing. I think there are others that um, still have some work to do. Uh, in particular, I think there's lots of opportunity uh, to cross-sell marketing into a bunch of the new sales hub customers, and that's something that we're going to be working on. Hey, uh, James Rutherford with Stevens. Thanks for taking the questions. Um, couple, first on pricing power, if I may. I know there's a small increase to the, the um, pro-level service hub this year, and then last year we had the enterprise price increase. Um, just get a sense of kind of how you think about growth in terms of new customers versus price and how that will play out over long term. I think traditionally, um, well, how will I say I think when we raise the price of Marketing Hub Enterprise, uh, a lot of the value of the increase, we, we didn't hear the pushback, right? I think that was a good move. We continued to sell Marketing Hub Enterprise. We were not, you know, getting pushback there, and we realized a bunch of the impact of the price increase on new customers. I think with the Sales Hub Professional, we've added tons and tons of features. We look at how that product compares in the market. We look at how that product is priced in the market. And we think we have, you know, a similar opportunity to really capitalize there. I think what we're going to want to keep doing with our pricing is kind of keep tilting that axis, you know. Uh, think about where we were five years ago. We basically had one $750 product, right? And what we've done is we've brought the prices down to get started and up as we've added uh, functionality. So I think there's still an opportunity for us to keep tilting that, capture the entire consumer surplus, if you will, right? I think there's still an opportunity for us to do that. Okay, and then one follow-up. I'm sure that you've tested this, but, but with all of the new free features you're adding, is there any risk that customers may actually downgrade to free from their paid version now? I'm sure you've tested this, but I just kind of wanted to ask. I think that the reality of the sort of world in which we live, and you hear this from the sort of front and center and the disruption thing is, you know, yes, we probably did disrupt our pro and enterprise business a bit when we introduced Starter, but if we don't do it, somebody else will. And I think we want to modernize ahead of the curve, not get caught flat-footed and, you know, have somebody else disrupt us. And by the way, so... My second uh, pricing and packaging philosophy discussion is about features, which is what's going to happen over time with any product line is that the features that used to be demanded only by enterprises, they start to be required by everybody. 
So you have to keep innovating so that you can put more and more features in your enterprise and keep pushing down the function, the, the features uh, down the stack. Otherwise, you know, you're going to get disrupted from below uh, in that way. So the, power, the way we think about, uh, in addition to sort of tilting the curve on pricing, is we want to keep innovating and keep driving that functionality down that uh, folks three years ago, only enterprises needed. Now every business is part of sort of standard issue. Um, so as we think about pricing and packaging going forward, that's going to be a big part of it too. So I think you'll can, you know, we'll probably be having this discussion again next year. What other features did you push down into the starter tier and the free tier? And it'll be matched with what other new things did we bring uh, to the top of that uh, product stack. How are you doing? Josh Bennett from Weatherby Capital. I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit. I'm thinking about the idea of kind of rolling out new hubs over time and maybe using Service Hub as an example. Talk about what was the process by which you kind of came up with that new hub. How long did it take to develop it from a technical side? How long do you typically test these hubs before you kind of do the full rollout? Give us a sense so that we can get some kind of feel for how the, um, the rollout and development of new hubs goes. Thank you. Uh, we've been thinking about Service Hub for a long time. Uh, when we started coming out with our Sales Hub and our Free CRM, we were already thinking about Service Hub. Uh, the Service Hub, what I liked about it is it's a little bit like I talked about earlier. Um, underneath Service Hub are web pages, our search engine optimization, is conversations and chat, is email. So you're kind of assembling Lego pieces uh, when you're building it. Uh, and so I don't remember how long it took, yearish. I'm not sure. It just sort of kind of flows out of that CRM is what happens. And then, yeah, we test, we test it. Uh, we, we have a pretty aggressive beta program. We're getting better at that beta program. One of the great things about our agency partners is they make terrific beta testers of all our products. Um, and so you can imagine that for existing hubs, it's not like we have to think real hard about what would be additional hubs. So we have them in our heads, um, more than one. They're relatively obvious. Uh, and for the most part, they are they're heavily leaning on and leveraging the framework underneath HubSpot. And so hopefully we have the same success. I mean, we built a marketing business, took us eight years, it went really well. Then we built the sales business. That thing's gone great. It's over $100 million. Then we come up with a service business, and what did you say it was, $14 million? Like, that's cranking. What I've noticed in the market when I talk to customers, I talk to tons of customers, and you saw today in Christopher's presentation, his three companies that he referenced, at least two of the three were using Service Hub. They picked HubSpot. You know, they picked HubSpot as a platform, and then they assembled all the other apps around it. And maybe HubSpot Service Hub didn't have every feature that they needed, but it was close enough, and they understood the value of having it all in one. There's a lot of that going on. I think that's people are going to pick a hub in the future, just like Darmesh and I talked about in his presentation. We're both Apple people. We both have Macs. It's not like we go out and buy an Android phone. We buy an iPhone. I think it's kind of going to be the same thing in the CRM industry. And that's part of why we're doing the platform initiative. We want lots and lots of these third-party applications to be able to plug in. We want to have it be all in one, manage all that inside of HubSpot. Hi, uh, Ryan McDonald with Needham over here. Uh, I guess just piggybacking off of the previous question, you know, as you were expanding your hubs previously, you had not yet, I guess, fully built out this app ecosystem. So as you 
sort of think about adding additional hubs? How do you do that without uh, alienating the app marketplace or the ecosystem of your partners moving forward? Thanks. Carefully. Carefully is right. Um, I think one of the opportunities we have at HubSpot is rethinking the relationship between app partners and, and the platform provider. Um, and part of what we've communicated is that we will solve for the customer which is uh, we think choice is good. So we want as many integration partners uh, you know, building on top of the platform, but we have not said it's like, okay, we're going to carve out this territory and we're not going to do that. We're not going to acquire into it. We think if it's the right thing for the customer, uh, we'll do that. And I think our app partners kind of trust us that we've had these conversations with them, uh, but we are very, very mindful uh, having been on both sides of that particular equation um, of, of I think what it would take to kind of build a trust in the same brand that we have within our customer community and our agency community now, we think we can build a similar brand for HubSpot within that it's a good company to partner with. That's, that's the hope that's what we're building. And with that, <laughs> I want to thank everybody for, uh, for coming. Thank you for your support and wish you uh, safe travels home.